The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Starting the show with this, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I can't avoid commenting on this because it has been burned into my mind all day. I'll say this was one of the first emails, one of the first articles I read when upon checking my emails when I woke up yesterday afternoon or yesterday morning, whenever I woke up. And I think the person who actually sent it to me initially, at least the Washington Post version, of this story was uh, David in the Bronx. By now, a lot of you have probably seen this video. It's very, I think the only word that can describe it is disturbing. The Dalai Lama, His Holiness, was on video at a public event in India Now, this happened not yesterday, but it happened in late February at the Dalai Lama's temple there. And he was having this big public event. And a lot of young students who had just graduated from uh, basically, I think, their equivalent of the third grade, uh, they were all there. So the Dalai Lama is the holiest figure in Tibetan Buddhism And he has lived in exile in India since 1959 when Tibet was annexed by China. Tibet is one of the many places in the world right now that is being oppressed by the Chinese. Just add it to the list. Hong Kong, Taiwan, Tibet, so on and so forth. In this video, one of these young male students approaches a microphone at the event and asks the Dalai Lama a question. This is what this is what transpires, and then for any gaps in what you can't tell is going on, I'll, I'll fill them in with words. Then I think finally here also. And <laughs> suck my tongue. <laughs> 
<laughs> so the boy asks the Dalai Lama, can I hug you? And the Dalai Lama, 87 years old, told the boy to come up to the platform where he was seated. Motioning to his cheek, the Dalai Lama is heard saying, first here. I think you could make that out. After which the child kissed him and gave him a hug. So far, I'm all good with it. Uh, all fine with me. I I kiss men all the time. I don't traditionally kiss children that I'm not related to or know you know, almost as if they're a familial relation. But, okay, I'm not the Dalai Lama. So the child kisses him and gives him a hug. So then then it gets, to say it's weird is a mild, is a mild, mild description. It's not weird. It's, I find it incredibly disturbing. The Dalai Lama kept hold of the boy and saying, I think here also and then planted a kiss on his lips and says the words you just heard there and suck my tongue while the Dalai Lama is sticking out his tongue and his forehead to forehead with the student. The boy quickly sticks out his own tongue and went to move away while the Dalai Lama laughed and pulled the boy in for another hug. Now, I don't want to make this out to be the biggest deal in the world because the audience laughed. It was not, um, this child was not abused. Usually some abuse or molestation takes place in private. But, um, and I'm sure that the Dalai Lama did this with the best of intentions, but the spiritual leader then spoke to the boy, advising him to look to those who create peace and happiness and not to follow human beings who always kill other people before giving him a final hug. Also a great message. As the video spread across the Internet, it was condemned by many who called it inappropriate, scandalous, and disgusting. That was my view, that this was disgusting. An 87-year-old man sticking out his tongue forehead to forehead with a little boy Telling him, suck my tongue. Now, the Dalai Lama has realized what a kerfuffle this has caused. You talk about a guy that has been getting good press internationally for the last 50 years. It's the Dalai Lama. And they have apologized. Their office, anyway, has apologized. They said uh, his behavior had been innocent and playful. This was the statement. His Holiness wishes to apologize to the boy and his family as well as his many friends across the world for the hurt his words may have caused. His Holiness often teases people he meets in an innocent and playful way, even in public and before cameras. He regrets the incident. I'll tell you what I find disturbing about this. Two things. I don't think the Dalai Lama is a child molester or a predator or anything like that. I, I think he did something in poor taste that he shouldn't have done. I, I, I think it's that simple. Here's what I find distasteful. One, there are all those children there in India with the Dalai Lama, okay? And they're all watching this. And there are... A billion other people in India, children and adults, that were all going to watch this. 
Now, what if you're an impressionable five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old, and you encounter an older man who does have nefarious actions, and that older man says to them, oh, I'm just like the Dalai Lama. I want you to follow peace and stay away from people that tell you to kill other people, and I want you to do like that little boy did with the Dalai Lama and uh, come here and kiss me and suck my tongue. You can understand how a six-year-old or a seven-year-old watching this in India might think that this is what you do. And you can understand a convincing Indian old man, and maybe even in other countries too, but particularly in India where they have a big problem with uh, child prostitution and child molestation in general, you can understand how an old man might sound very convincing. Maybe he looks even a little bit like the Dalai Lama. And so I'm not worried about what the Dalai Lama did. I'm worried about that what this the message that this sends to other children about the appropriateness of sucking on people's tongues. It doesn't even I don't even like saying it. I mean, it just sounds weird. I um I find it very bizarre. And the second aspect of it that I find so disturbing is that the Dalai Lama himself, as much of a a man of spiritualism as he is, as a guy that knows he is a role model, particularly for the world's Buddhists, of which there are plenty in India, but for a guy that knows he's a role model, how are you not aware enough to know that that's a very poor example that you're sending for children. So um, this the Dalai Lama is no stranger to controversy. Three years ago or four years ago, he caused an outcry after suggesting that if the Dalai Lama returned as a woman, she should be more attractive. Now, I, was, I actually defended the Dalai Lama at the time. I didn't think that... Um, I didn't think that there was anything wrong with that. I thought he was joking, uh, and I thought it was a pretty innocuous joke and no harm done. But uh, this, I, again, I I don't think that the Dalai Lama is a bad guy or he's up to no good. And I know we're not supposed to judge other people's cultures. I have no problem judging certain other people's cultures. And this is one where I'm pretty comfortable exercising judgment because of the of the juice that the Dalai Lama has in the international community. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Another listener emailed me saying, are there behaviors that really should be allowed to slide because it's consistent with the cultural mores or humor that is acceptable to the intended audience? My answer, no. You know what was acceptable in Afghanistan, it probably still is, unfortunately, is sleeping with with little boys, sleeping with little boys. And American GIs and even a lot of American military contractors that were in Afghanistan during the war, they would see this going on and they would flip out. But eventually, the American leadership of the Pentagon essentially had to tell the servicemen and the military contractors, sorry. These are our friends. 
that are doing this. You kind of have to look the other way on it. And I didn't think that was right then. So I don't think, I don't think that just because something is done with humor or with cultural, or it's consistent with cultural mores that we should, or, or even if it's okay with the boy and his parents, I don't think we should allow it to, to slide um, at all, at all. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Fugazi Tom is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Tom. Hey, what's up, Frank? Um, for you, judging the truth is not judging like that. If, you, if you're judging a, a person on things that's true, then it's not really like, you know, judging in the blind, you know, and t- trying to down them. So what you did is not that. I do not. That is out. That is out. What he did, the Dalai Lama, that is out. Now, I'm a person that always has to investigate stuff. So I'm leaving a little room for it maybe to be allowed in what he's about and his, I don't know. But a little room, I think that was too inappropriate. I don't know where that come from. I don't know. You see what I'm saying? That's why, is it in a religion or something to, to an extent? Because that, that, that's got to be seen as, you know, that is child abuse. That's child abuse. He's training children for some nonsense like that. Yeah, he got too much power for that. Yeah, I mean, I think you nailed exactly what my objection to this is, Tom, is uh, that essentially if you're the Dalai Lama, you have to know better. There's You have to know that just same thing. Dalai Lama is basically on par with the Pope in terms of being a leader for youth. And I can tell you, Pope Francis may do a lot of things that you wouldn't agree with. This is not something that he would do. Guarantee you that. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Mark is in Baltimore. Hello, Mark. Hi, how are you? I'd have to agree with everything that you just said. I saw the video myself, and I share the same observations that you, you did in your monologue there. I have a very good friend and neighbor who is of Indian heritage. She's a very, very, very good friend of mine. And when this came to her attention, she was very disturbed about it and was being questioned about it. She's actually being criticized for it. She shouldn't be. I mean, she didn't do it. But when I saw it, too, I thought to myself that was a little too much. Yeah, I think we yeah, uh, agreed. Uh, by the way, I'd love to get some uh, hear from some people that don't agree because, you know, I don't want to be totally grossed out and disturbed by behavior involving the Dalai Lama. Now, you think of the Dalai Lama. He's one of those guys that you think of, oh, he's always the guy at the dinner table that if you have a fantasy of the five people that you can invite to have dinner with, he's always one, right? Not after this, he's not for a lot of people. 800-848-9222. John is in Freehold. Hello, John. Hi, Frank. Uh, I, don't know, I don't see this as a bad thing. I mean, the, the Dalai Lama is a very, like, uh, jovial and playful guy if you've watched like a you know if you watch him a lot and i think he was just playing with the kid that is showing you know kid, kids are so innocent like uh you know i don't think it was anything bad he was just playing with him it's a, you know it's a different culture than ours too so it is like you said it, with, is. Uh, it, it is and um i'm willing to give a little leeway for that and again i don't think the dalai lama meant anything bad by it i just think 
while he's in exile in a country where he's got to know what a problem child prostitution is. I think he's got to know, given his high profile and his visibility, what this looks like to other children and adults. Aren't you? I I feel like you're reading way too far into it, though. I hope I am. I hope I am, because I don't want to be annoyed at the Dalai Lama. Uh, I hope I am. Uh, I want this not to be a big deal. 800-848-9222. Russ is in White Plains. Oh, hey, Frank. Hey, thanks for suggesting I reach out to my son about a, a topic other than politics. We're going to go to the auto show, and I want to thank you for oh, that. Oh, wonderful. I'm so happy to hear that. That's great. Yeah. Uh, listen, my wife was 20 years ago was on a jury, and uh, there's a pattern of pedophile behavior. She was uh, There was a teacher at uh, a a school who was using lifesavers on the steps of the Metropolitan Museum with a kid who had a, you know, a problematic family life. And the jury didn't want to convict him because they figured lifesavers, he was exchanging lifesavers with the kid from mouth to mouth. Mm. So it's a, a common pedophile pattern of behavior. But, you know, eventually my wife led the jury and they convicted him. But the judge, I think, he either set aside the verdict or put the guy back on probation. I believe he went back to the school. I mean, it was a Supreme Court judge named Richard Below, Dick Below, if you can believe it. So, you know, even judges didn't understand what was going okay, on. Okay, well, yeah, again, I, I don't want to get into that specific case because I'm only talking – I don't know anything about the details there and uh, and, the, and what happened in that case. But I, I, I just know what I'm seeing in this video, and I will tell you, I do not like it. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. George in Manhattan. Hello. Hi, uh, Frank. Frank. Yes. We have a uh, what you mean. I know your name pretty well. Okay. Listen. <laughs> uh, uh, regarding the uh, Dalai Lama, I think it's uh, maybe uh, fairly innocent on his part. He doesn't mean anything harmful, you know, or sexual. I agree. Uh, I don't think he does. Absolutely. Right. Another thing is cultural. Uh, mores, you know, uh, versus the United States. In the U.S., for example, um, men kiss their uh, sons lip, uh, mouth to mouth also. That does happen. However, if that happens in Saudi Arabia, it's taboo, of course. In Saudi Arabia, on the other hand, men who are not uh, homosexuals, they walk around hand in hand, you know, quite commonly. They're in uh, Saudi Arabia, not Iran, you know. In some Arab-speaking uh, countries, they do have that uh, custom whereby, uh, you know, uh, men uh, hand in hand, uh, you know, walking around, etc. Uh, so it all depends culturally, uh, basically. Uh, so uh, uh, as far as the Dalai Lama, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt uh, until in future something else comes up whereby there is more concrete evidence that something is wrong with them. Thank you, George. Uh, Yeah, I want to be very clear. Uh, I don't think that the Dalai Lama is a pedophile or an abuser of children. I just think this looks bad, number one. And number two, the Dalai Lama is so high profile that you have to avoid doing things that could potentially look bad, even if you don't mean anything bad by it. There's a responsibility that comes with your position of being the Dalai Lama or the Pope or the president. You know, I I was thinking recently about, um, 
you know, my interview with a, a, a judge recently and how she basically said she tries to always keep in mind because of the weight of her office that she's a judge. And she should. And I think other judges have said this that I've interviewed as well. And she shouldn't do anything, whether it's dress inappropriately or behave in some inappropriate manner that that looks bad on the office that she has. Now, this is a lower level state judge that no one has heard of, not someone that's one of the best known people in the entire world. There's a responsibility that comes with that. 800-848-9222. Larry in Brooklyn, I'm afraid to ask. What's on your mind? You know, I'm, I, you know I cannot believe the incredible ignorance that I'm hearing what's go- about, about the evaluation of this incident. First of all, you know what the, the problem is in, his, in, in the fir- his first name, The. All his life, this 87-year-old man was trying to transcend his own nature to live up to this big image of being – and he did it very, very well. He spread great messages, and he stands for beautiful things. But he obviously was neglecting his own needs. If anybody is so stupid to not see what the the obvious thing is, the obvious blatant thing, he was trying to surpass protocol. What do I mean by that? He's 87 years old. He doesn't have that many opportunities to hook up with with who he wants to hook up. I'm not not indulging in that. Uh, Please. It's just an absolutely ridiculous thing. All right. On that note, I think I think we're done. I think we're done. All right. Um, hey, coming up, you know what's a big problem? The fact that a lot of people around the world don't have enough water to drink. So we found this group, Waves for Water, which is their their life's work is basically to get access to clean water for everyone who needs it. And that is a story. I'm drinking from some clean water right now. At least I hope it's clean. You wouldn't think of that as one of the world's needs, but the fact is, it is. So we're going to talk with Rob McQueen in a moment from the group Waves for Water. Uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation very much. This is The Other Side of Midnight Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
One wonders if uh, Lisa Left Eye Lopez ever had to do much literal chasing of waterfalls. I suspect not. But uh, unfortunately, there are a whole lot of people around the world who don't have access to clean water, which is something that uh, so many of us take for granted. And uh, I discovered this terrific organization called Waves for Water, and I'm very pleased to welcome Rob McQueen, the Field Operations Director uh, for Waves for Water, to tell us a little bit more about it. Rob, uh, good morning. Thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Good morning, Frank. Thanks for having me on, brother. All right, Rob, uh, before we talk about what Waves for Water actually does, uh, how many people around the world would you say actually have a tough time with um, with getting access to clean water? So I think the last stat I saw was roughly one in three people uh, don't have access to clean water. That is absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's unreal. And when you really think about it that way, something that we take for granted, uh, especially you know here in, in, in the U.S. and other developed countries, the fact that I can go just turn on a tap and have a glass of water immediately uh, just that's not the way the most of the world works, and that's not the life that most people have. Like it takes a process to get clean water. If you can even get through that process and get that access, so often you're left with just what you have at hand. So, what does that mean if someone is in a community where they don't have access to clean water? Mm-hmm. What does that mean for them, lifestyle-wise? What does that mean for them, health-wise? What does that mean for their long-term uh, prospects? What does that mean for their life if they don't have access to clean water? And I mean, that's such a broad question because, you know, when you think of clean water, obviously we always think of the health and health impacts, right? Like you have to have water to live. You have to have access to clean water for your children to grow and be healthy. But if you really break it down and look at it, it affects every aspect of life. So if you don't have immediate access to clean water, let's say there's kind of two ways you can work this, right? One, you have access and the resources to buy clean water, or you have the ability to go get water, boil it, and work through that system to create clean water on your own. Both of those create a huge amount of resources. And in most of these areas, any of those resources are going to drain your ability to kind of expand your family, put money into, the, into your community, put money into your children, have things move forward. Uh, I worked at a small village in the Amazon, and I think that village, they pooled their money together to do medical trips once a week that were based almost entirely on waterborne illness. And I think they were spending close to half of their monthly money that that village made just taking kids the small village up north of Cabaya Coche in Peru taking their children and the people that were sick on boats to the small village that had a small doctor uh four or five I think it was four and a half hours away so when you look at it from that aspect like it's not just oh my kid's sick I have to move on now you're reducing opportunities you're removing man hours from people that are working you're limiting the children's ability to be educated and Mm. grow so it is a absolutely cornerstone of society to have that basic need that you have to have met in order for anything else to happen. Where are most of the places that uh, that don't have clean water? Do they tend to be in clusters uh, geographically or is it uh, around the world? It's around the world. It's absolutely around the world. Like I've been in some countries where, you know, in the city, it's possibly safe to drink. The second you get outside of it, uh, you run into that issue because – Water itself, I mean, it is a heavy infrastructure burden to create clean water for everybody. There's a lot of places that do have, you know, fresh mountain water, water they've been drinking forever. But even then, those non-filtered or those non-treated water sources, all it takes is a heavy rainfall 
or a flash flood or a change in animal patterns that can kind of contaminate those existing water sources. So it really is really narrowed down to the areas that have water infrastructure in place, testing, and then the rest of it is just I mean, I mean, it's it's almost a financial issue when you look at the society. Uh, talking with Rob McQueen, he's with the group Waves for Water. You can learn more about them at their website, wavesforwater.org. Uh, Rob, tell me about your group. What do you guys do? So we do access to clean water in remote and austere environments. So we focus heavily in disaster areas uh, and really just kind of look at where we can take our small filtration system and training to the areas that large water infrastructure is not going to get to and where we can make an impact on people's lives. Are, are you guys um, nonprofit? Are you for-profit? What's you, how are you guys organized? We are a 501c3 nonprofit, absolutely. Great. So if people go on there and they make a donation to you, yep. uh, chances are they can actually get a tax deduction as well. Absolutely. All right, yeah, good. Definitely. That's good. Good around tax time. Um, okay, so you you guys will set up an infrastructure allowing these groups that uh, that don't have access to clean water to harvest rainwater and filter it so that it's something that can be used not only for consumption but for things like bathing. Yeah, in areas where there aren't really solid groundwater sources that our filtration systems will work on, uh, we do construct rain harvesting systems and then run that into our filtration systems. Yep. And, Rob, how did you get involved with uh, Waves for Water? What, what sparked your interest in this? What's your background? So I spent uh, 18 years in the U.S. military, majority of that in special operations. And so I was actually working out of the U.S. Embassy in Sarajevo, uh, when the massive flooding hit in uh, 2014. So John Rose, the founder of Waves for Water, had worked with a friend of mine in Afghanistan. I called him up. I was like, hey, you that filter guy? And he's like, yeah, like, you want to come over and do some work with me in Bosnia? And so we ended up borrowing a, a Bosnian helicopter, old UH-1 Huey with post-it notes, a pilot that barely spoke English and flew around to about five different villages, helped over 20,000 people that were just cut off and had contaminated water sources. So from there, John and I became friends, uh, reached out a few years later, and he asked me to start, uh, help him found a veterans division inside of Waves for Water uh, in order to kind of leverage the skills that veterans have and also create a new team and purpose as almost kind of a dual humanitarian mission. And so we founded the Clean Water Corps together, Waves for Water's veteran division. Uh, we now have 40 vets that we've sent to 27 different countries. Uh, so that's, it's, been, it's been a great ride. Uh, that's terrific. Uh, absolutely uh, terrific. Now, when there is a, a disaster, uh, be it an, an environmental or a ecological disaster like a, mm-hmm. a hurricane or something along those lines, or something that's a result of, uh, of a war, like what might happen mm-hmm. in Yemen or Ukraine, does that have any sort of an immediate impact on the water supply? Absolutely. Uh, Ukraine's a perfect example. Uh, we, I was just over in Ukraine in November, uh, and what happened, Russia actually turned off, like when they moved into uh, the area just outside Mikolaev, uh, they actually turned off the water supply, which moved from the east to west into Mikolaev. So immediately you had uh, a water crisis. So we had to work through different systems in order to find ways that we could help them collect rainwater and use our filtration systems, filter the existing systems they had, and in the end, actually starting to run uh, some of the help, some of the other organizations that were running literal blivets of water in trolley cars in order to meet that need. So in a war, absolutely it's there. And in every environment, water becomes kind of the most critical system immediately after a catastrophic event. 
And your group, Waves for Water, is, I know, a nonprofit, but it's been described as sort of a guerrilla humanitarian organization. Mm-hmm. Why, why use that term, guerrilla humanitarian organization? What makes you guys different and how you handle these challenges compared with a conventional uh, major 501c3, like the American Red Cross or something along those lines? I think you know every every nonprofit has their place and their role in this. Sure. And, and the way that we approach guerrilla humanitarianism, the thought process is, is when you look at large bureaucracies and those big 501c3s are large bureaucracies. They work inside of a big system, and those big systems miss needs on the ground. Right? They're just not agile enough. They're bound by too many restrictions in the way they operate. So, being a guerrilla humanitarian, we're kind of that guerrilla fighter. If you look at it from that thought process, like we're willing to buck the system, we're willing to bend the rules a little bit, as long as we get to the people in need and do and and be honest in our effort to help them. And so we're kind of that like light, nimble organization that's willing to get out there and make a difference. Uh, but we're not always going to play by the rules, I guess you could say. <laughs> sure, uh, we're talking with Rob McQueen. Check him out: wavesforwater.org. Obviously, there's the great work that you're doing. You're helping a lot of people around the world. But we're also seeing that right now the global population is still growing. And I'm sure a lot of the problems uh, that come with water supply might be growing as well. Is the mission that you guys have to get water to people that need it, is it getting more difficult as time goes by, or are you guys making significant global progress in terms of getting more people access to water? There are some great organizations out there working in it. So I would say as a whole, the water space, I think it's a little bit of both, right? Um, Yes, more people access clean water. The control of water is an interesting topic to discuss. It's not, not one I'm an expert in, but I know there's some challenges. But really, when you look at it from our perspective, we are making strides. It is moving forward. There's so much work to be done, but it's just something that we're, we're going to keep driving on with. We're going to keep working on. Uh, and as long as we can move forward in our efforts, everyone can move that path and technology begins to grow and change. I think the only thing that makes it easier is starting to see technologies, uh, everything from solar panels that can pull water out of the air to advanced filtration systems that work quickly and well with low energy. Those are the things that are going to make a huge difference as we really start to address this need. Uh, Rob, has your work in the military, whether it was in Sarajevo or in other places, maybe Afghanistan or or elsewhere, Mm -hmm. has your work in the military helped uh, prepare you for the kind of work you're doing now? And if so, how? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I spent time as an infantryman before special operations. Uh, deployed to Iraq, where I worked with I think, nine different tribal elders and over 900 volunteers uh, as part of the, the awakening. And then I worked in a small village in Afghanistan with a joint special operation element, uh, working in and working living in small villages. Uh, so really, the skill sets I had. I'm one of those few people that left the military and basically got to take the skill sets I grew, I groomed, which was working with small teams, austere remote environments, local culture local partners, and then taking it and applying it directly to my next job. And because really what we do at Waves for Water is it's a small filtration system. It's training, but it's identifying local partners, teaching them, training them, and giving them the tools so they can own that that, that program. They can make a difference in their community, and then we can continue to do that and expand versus being the guys that come in there over and over and over again. So it really does all the experience in special operations really translated perfectly into doing this. Something tells me you're not the only veteran that's involved in Waves for Water. 
No, no. I've got 40 other vets that work with me, and we've, I just sent a team on their second trip to Turkey. Uh, and on Friday, we take another team over to Madagascar. So we're always working. We've got a great crew. Well, that's terrific. People could check out the website, wavesforwater.org, and learn more about what you guys are doing. Uh, Rob, thanks for taking the time, and uh, and thanks, more importantly, for what you're doing. Hopefully people will listen, contribute, and learn more about uh, what is an urgent global need. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Rob McQueen, the group is Waves for Water. Uh, terrific. Terrific nonprofit organization, and uh, they are battling a lot of problems all over the globe. You want to comment on any aspect of what we've uh, we, we've discussed? You're welcome to call me eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. midnight. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Well, this is clever. Waterloo. Yeah, I get it. Okay, that's clever. I like ABBA. I really do. I'll tell you, if you're an ABBA fan, or even just a fan of this song, there's a, um, I'm not going to call it a wonderful movie, because you can live the rest of your life without ever seeing it and be just fine. But there's a relatively amusing movie uh, that I saw maybe about two or three years ago. It's called Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga. And I'll spare you the, uh, the details of it. It's a couple of years old now. But I feel like because of when it came out, that was ju- that was, it was smack dab right in the middle of the pandemic. And a lot of people didn't see it. It was sort of right when the world was in between that transition between seeing things in theaters and seeing things at home. And a lot of people didn't see it. But there's, there's a fun little theme in that film having to do with this song and having to do with uh, this, uh, having to do with the song and having to do with ABBA in general. And it's uh, it's a fun movie. Uh, Again, if you're looking for something fun to watch, Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga with Will Ferrell. 
and it is not a true story. We don't believe. All right. Uh, let me tell you what's coming up. Uh, we have an action-packed show. Next hour, we are going to take a look at the wonderful world of UFOs. And I know what you're saying. Okay, you've talked about UFOs a lot. Good. That's what we do on this show. We talk about UFOs. That's number one. Number two, we've discussed a lot of aspects of UFOlogy from Earth. What we have not really done is talk a bit about UFOs seen from space. You remember those legendary Apollo missions, Apollo 1 through 11? Well, there's always been rumors that maybe there was something going on there about what people involved in those Apollo missions saw with respect to UFOs. Well, Darcy Weir has a new documentary out. It's on Amazon exploring this very question. And we're going to get into this in a big way. I'm looking forward to that. You want to give us a call? You can do so. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And if you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on this show, just go to facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. We post the songs in there after every show. And it's also a forum for uh, discussing the show. A bunch of people commenting on that story I told over the weekend about me uh, trying to leave a bar with a glass. A lot of folks in the Facebook group are saying that it was a martini glass. It was not a martini glass. By that portion of the evening, it was I had uh, made the trans. I only had one martini the whole night, I believe. And by that portion of the evening, I had transitioned to vodka and soda. So that was the glass, not a martini glass. Not that it really changes the story much, but just so folks, uh, just so there's some semblance of accuracy. I'll tell you what, how often do you change your mobile phone? Matt Blaze, what about you? How often do you change your phone? Not as often as I don't, I'm not one of those, I have to get the newest, latest, greatest phone every year. Right, so how long have you had your phone? But this phone, because... The deal that I got on my old phone for trading it in, I did trade in. I did have that phone for a year. You had the previous phone for a year, right? Oh, and this one I've had for a few months. I got okay, it around so Christmas. That's a new phone, right? And you replaced the new phone. Ken, what about you? What's your deal? I've had this phone for about five or so years. Five or I, so years. Yeah, and I usually get a new one within the range of like three to five years. So it sounds like you're about two. Yeah, under your much. own timetable. Yes. So that is interesting. So my philosophy has always been that I will use a phone until it stops working in just about every single respect. If it can still text, go on the Internet in a pinch, go on a handful of apps and make phone calls, I will still use it. But lately... uh, I'm having a lot of difficulty with this phone. And I like to keep a phone for a long time because I, 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 if you keep your phone for a while, you, you become the guy with the vintage phone. You become the guy through attrition that has a flip phone while everyone else has got a Star Trek-style communicator. Now both of those things are kind of antiquated. Flip phone's actually coming back. But the, the issue that I have with this phone, and this has now been an issue for maybe a year now, the battery just does not last. 
It just doesn't last. I just finished charging it. It's already at 62%. Right before the show, it was charging. I've been, it's been off a charger for 53 minutes. It's at 62%. Also, I've noticed that the uh, more and more it gets into this mode where the person I'm speaking to can't hear me, um, can hear me, but I can't hear the the person I'm speaking to. It almost sounds like it's a Charlie Brown character, like this little with the hand over their mouth and their nose. And I struggle to understand what it is they're saying. All right, so the battery dies super quickly, which I can't tell you how much that ticks off my wife when she can't get in touch with me. I mean, you want to talk about the worst arguments that we've had in the course of our marriage? I would say we've had, I don't know, I don't know, maybe, uh, I, I, this might be a high number. I'm going to say we've had 30, eh, maybe 25 very bad arguments. About half have to do with her not being able to get in touch with me, thinking I'm dead lying in a ditch somewhere or something. And you notice that's always what people say. How do I know you're not dead lying in a ditch somewhere? My friend John Tobacco said to me one time, why why do they always think we're dead somewhere? We're drunk, probably somewhere, with no phone. So, um, but trying to tell her that when she's in an irate state, that just does not fly. So, um, also, one of the things I really use my mobile phone a lot for is taking photographs of, of Carmine. And my wife, and I hate to give the iPhone credit, because I use a Google Pixel, and I'm staying with the Google Pixel no matter what. But my wife's phone, it does take photos so much more clearly than than my phone does. And the reason that's significant, you know, my phone's fine, especially outdoors. But a lot of times I'll try and take indoor photos of Carmine, and he, you know, he's constantly moving around. And so... It gets a bit blurry, so I don't love I don't love that, and um, I mean that's really it. It texts fine, uh, actually no, it does get a little stuck on the text. But here's the other thing it's been doing is sometimes it just takes a while to turn on. For instance, my wife asked me what time it was yesterday, and I tried to turn on my phone, and it was essentially frozen for two minutes. And I said, and she kept kept waiting. I said, all right, what time is it? I said, I don't know. My phone's still kind of frozen. It just goes into this mode where it gets frozen for a couple of minutes at a time. So I've had this one for a little more than five years, uh, five years and a month. And I'm starting to wonder if it's time for me to get a new phone. I I think it might be. I don't want to do it because usually you buy a new phone and you have to pay it all. First of all, they're expensive, number one. Especially phones that do anything, they're expensive. So you pay it off over the course of whatever many months, um, maybe two years, three years, whatever the case may be. And so I always feel for every month that I'm hanging on to the phone after I've paid it off, I'm somehow ahead of the game. So I try to hang on to it as long as possible. But I think maybe... This month or next month, I think I'm going to move towards a new phone. Uh, but I don't want to be one of these guys that rushes out and gets a new mobile phone all the time. You've just made every argument 
of why you need I know. a new phone. Well, my radio apps <laughs> still play, usually just fine. Usually and, just fine. And you have a Google Pixel, which is an Android device. Right. So you can easily transfer everything from one phone to the other. I My phone is a Samsung. I actually bought it through Samsung, not through my carrier. So I actually pay Samsung, and they give you the choice, two years, three years, however you want to pay it off. And again, if in a year from now they give me a good deal to trade in this phone for the upgrade of the next phone, then I'll do it, which is the reason why I did this one in the first place. So I got an email a week ago today. It says, it's time to upgrade to a new Pixel. Meet Pixel 7 and Pixel 7 Pro. The most advanced Google phones yet, powered by Google Tensor G2. Now, I love that they say that, that I, and somehow that's supposed to impress me. Ooh, Google Tensor G2. What am I? I'm sitting here with Google Less Tense G Force 1. And uh, what, what, uh, Google set Tensor G2, I'm not even sure that that means anything. It's like rust proofing or a Johnson rod. It's somehow supposed to impress me. But they say these phones are fast, secure, and even more helpful. But they are expensive. If you upgrade to the Google 7 Pro, for instance, um, it's, uh, I think it was almost, I think it was almost $700. Again, you can pay that out over time. So it's, you don't even really notice it. It's an additional 30 bucks a month until you pay it off. But that's, that's real money. So, uh, but I, I think I may have to just get break down and get a new one. We'll see. Um, let me know if anyone has this Google Pixel 7 or the Google Pixel 7 Pro. Um, let me know if either of them actually work. Because the last thing I want to do is upgrade to a phone that's a downgrade. And this, I've gotten used to this phone. So we'll see. Next hour. UFOs and a whole lot more. Still to come, Malachi McCourt returns to the program. He's still alive. At least he was last I spoke to him. Till next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. I am not a believer in book bans. I'm not much of a believer in banning any t- sort of information or artistic expression. The one exception that I could understand for that is if you're talking about books that are intended for children, say in an elementary school library, we don't necessarily want books that uh, include graphic sexual content. I understand that, and those are books that I am okay with prohibiting. However, in so many states, whether under the auspices of we're banning this book because of critical race theory or we're banning this book because of, um, you know, uh, sexual content, in so many states, I am quite disturbed. I, I hate to start the first segment of each hour using the word disturbed, but it's true. I am quite disturbed with how comfortable so many seem to be with banning 
books and certain types of books specifically. Specifically, let us go to Orlando, Florida. A high school along Florida's Atlantic coast has removed a graphic novel based on the diary of Anne Frank after a leader of a conservative advocacy group challenged it, claiming it minimized the Holocaust. Now, let me give you the facts first, then I'll invite you to comment and give you my take on this. Anne Frank's diary, the graphic adaptation, was removed from a library at Vero Beach High School after a leader of Moms for Liberty in Indian River County raised an objection. The school's principal agreed with the objection, and the book was removed last month. The book at one point shows the protagonist, Anne Frank, walking in a... I think we all know the story of Anne Frank, right? I mean, she was she and other people she was hiding with during the Holocaust were hiding from the Nazis, and ultimately they were killed. And essentially, this diary, which has also been made into a film, is really her last um, way of communicating to the world about the things that she saw and experienced. It's really a breathtaking piece of literature and eyewitness testimony about what occurred. And the book at one point shows the protagonist walking in a park enchanted by female nude statues and later proposing to a friend that they show each other their breasts. And under the school district's policy, the principal makes the decision on a challenge book. If someone disagrees with the decision to keep the disputed book on the shelves, it can be appealed to a district-wide committee. The Anne Frank graphic novel had been checked out twice before it was removed. And other books about Anne Frank and copies of the published diary that she wrote chronicling her time hiding from the Nazis with her family and other Jews in German-occupied Amsterdam remain in the school's library system. So it's not as if they get rid of this book. That means no one will know anything about Anne Frank. Um, By law, Florida schools are required to teach about the Holocaust, and nothing has changed in that respect. And according to um, Kristen Maddox, a spokeswoman for the school district, the feedback that the Holocaust is being removed from the curriculum and students aren't knowledgeable about that, about what happened, that is not the case at all. It's just a challenged book, and the principal removed it. So besides the Anne Frank graphic novel, Moms for Liberty in Indian River County objected to three books in the Assassination Classroom series, and they were also removed. Um, Moms for Liberty leader Jennifer Pippin said the Anne Frank graphic novel violated state standards to teach the Holocaust accurately. Quote, even her version featured the editing out of the entries about sex. Pippin said, referring to the original diary. Even the publisher of the book calls it a biography, meaning it writes its own interpretive spin. It's not the actual work. It quotes the work, but it's not the diary in full. It chooses to offer a different view on the subject. So this particular version of the Anne Frank story 
was published five years ago. And it was adapted from her diary by Ari Fulman, and David Polanski provided the illustrations. Fulman's parents, the man who adapted this, were, excuse me, are Holocaust survivors. His, the guy that wrote this graphic novel, his parents survived the Holocaust. And so uh, the American Library Association, this is not just one school in one state, want to be clear. Florida has gotten the worst with these book bans under DeSantis. But the American Library Association reported last month that there were more than 1,200 demands to censor library books last year in the U.S. That is the highest number since the association began tracking more than 20 years ago. I hate that. Now, I don't know what all those 1,200 demands are, but I will tell you that in general, I don't like censorship and I don't like uh, books books being banned, okay? So where does that leave us? Um, public high school in Florida has pulled an illustrated adaptation of Anne Frank's diary from its library shelf. It should be noted that they are not the first school to try and pull this version. There was a school in Texas that ordered this book removed, and there was an outcry. And ultimately, they had to uh, they had to bring it back. Uh, a Texas school district that ordered the same book removed last year, they reversed their decision after public criticism. I have to tell you, I am sensitive to... So they say, the high school says... The diary is, quote, not age appropriate. That's what they're claiming. I think this book should not be banned. I think if this is an easy way for high school students to learn about what happened with Anne Frank and her family, and they're more likely to learn this story through a graphic adaptation. And there's a lot to be said for graphic adaptation of classic literature. Uh, I've read, as a young person, some classic literature adapted into a graphic novel. I think that um, this book shouldn't be banned. I think this principle overstepped here. And this is... Other books about the Holocaust were recently removed from other public schools. You remember the whole discussion about Art Spiegelman's Mouse, which a Tennessee district pulled from the middle school curriculum last year, or uh, the book The Storyteller, which was removed from another Florida district last month following a parental challenge. See, it's always Florida, 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 Florida. Not always, but often. But the removal at this particular school was spurred by at least one challenge from a parent in the district Um And I think the principal overreacted. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Now, the spokesperson that I cited earlier, Ms. Maddox, she said that she herself had not read the book and did not immediately know what the inappropriate content in question was. Don't you think she should read it before banning it? Um. The so there you have it. Uh, I gave you my take, and I'd love to hear yours. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's eight hundred eight four eight.
800-848-9222. So the graphic novel has attracted some scrutiny for reproducing passages of Anne Frank's diary that had been edited out of the original Dutch publication uh, in the 40s. The diary was first published in English in 1952. Those passages, which were in Anne Frank's diary, I want to be very clear, those passages relate to Anne Frank's latent feelings of attractiveness towards another girl and her description, quite frankly, of of her own genitalia. Anne's father, Otto Frank, restored the former passage for the book's 1952 English edition, while the latter, meaning she restored the portion about her being attracted to another girl, but the latter passage about her genitalia was not restored to the diary until the 1980s. Um, should these sensitive passages cause the book to be removed? My answer, no. I think this is a more accurate version of the Anne Frank story than what a lot of these school students are likely to be exposed to. Bottom line, Anne Frank is one of the most important historical figures, period. And what she was a part of is one of the most uniquely horrific events that have ever occurred in human history. And I don't think that a whole book, which has the potential to teach a lot of people that might not otherwise learn about her story, I don't think that a whole book should be banned Because some people find some portions of it uncomfortable. You know what was uncomfortable? The Holocaust. And uh, I don't think that this book should be banned. Do you? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. We are actually approaching the 80th anniversary, depending on how you count, of the Holiday, uh, the Holocaust, um, if you include the Warsaw Ghetto uprising on the on the 19th as sort of the beginning of it. You, so it's a very ap- appropriate discussion to to have. By the way, I do want to recommend um, we had this gentleman in studio on International Holocaust Remembrance Day, D- Dr. Dan McMillan, a brilliant guy. And I'm going to have him back to talk about some other issues. Maybe we'll have him back to talk about this, too. But. Um, His book, How Could This Happen? It's not a graphic novel, but it's one of the most interesting, uh, most thorough, and yet most basic books about the conditions that led to the Holocaust. So it's called How Could This Happen? Explaining the Holocaust. It's about 10 years old. It's a comprehensive essay on the causes of the Holocaust. And it really does provide a great deal of context and an understanding of what led a civilized country, Germany, to completely reject the value of human life. And uh, I, I do recommend that book. Dan McMillan, How Could This Happen? Explaining the Holocaust. All right. Should this book be banned in public schools in general and in this public school specifically where there's a complaint about it? What say you? 800 848 Let me begin with Diana in Manhattan. Hello, Diana. 
Hi, how are you? Whatever happened to knowledge is power? I do not believe in book banning. When I was 11 and 12, with my mother's blessing, I would read things like Valley of the Dolls or The Carpetbaggers, and then she and I would discuss these books. Uh, as to the Holocaust and poor Anne Frank, well, I mean, she dies at the end because of the Holocaust, so there doesn't seem to be a way to minimize that. And uh, as to, you know, her attraction to another young woman and her description of her genitalia, well, I'm sure everyone has been through interesting stuff, all young people, and they don't want to feel that they're freaks. So I think it's a much better idea not to ban anything and let people read and think and grow. And that may be why they're banning things, because if you dumb people down, they do what you tell them to do. And I think that's the real reason. What well, do you think? Uh, yeah, well, thank you, Diana. I, I Again, I want to hear from other folks because I've given you a pretty detailed view of where I come down on this. My view is I don't like book banning. I don't like censoring books. That being said, when we're talking children, when we're talking uh, prisoners, there are certain things that I understand why they're banned. Uh, for instance, do you want a um, – I mean, I, I look at the list of books banned in prison, and a lot of them are books that should be banned. Um, for instance, there's books about uh, very graphic sexual stuff. Um, there's books and, and, and I don't want that stuff in an elementary school at all. Um, so in New Hampshire, they have banned, um, a bunch of other books in prison, many of which that I think probably should be banned. Uh, others, not so much. Um, but whatever, I don't want to get into the prison book ban thing because that's a, a different situation than banning books that minors have access to. I don't like book banning, but when it comes to minors, I understand that certain things do need to be banned. I don't think this is one at all. I think this book should not be removed. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Joe in in Queens, what do you think? Yeah, I don't think it should be banned based on the the specific passage because – that that's just probably realism in terms of uh how someone might think in a given situation especially you know you would want to escape your mind in some fashion from the harsh reality of what's in front of you and that could be one way of thinking the other thing is I would more so just look if there was extreme gratuitous violence uh, that's what I would be concerned about in a novel for certain people. Like uh, that would be something where I would look, just look at that more so, where you would want to kind of maybe keep it just for a certain over a certain age, extreme gratuitous violence. Yeah, thank you very much. So this graphic novel adaptation of the diary was when it was released six years ago or five years ago, it was done with the full authorization of the Anne Frank Foundation. And again, the person that adapted it, an Israeli filmmaker named Ari Fulman, is the son of Holocaust survivors. And the book is intended for young readers. And the book compresses Anne Frank's actual diary entries 
into essentially a condensed version of her true story. So um, I don't think it should be prohibited. Dan in the Bronx, what do you think? Good evening, Frank. How are you? Good. Uh, anyway, uh, you know, I'm on the fence about Anne Frank, the work that she's done being banned. I don't think it should be banned, you know, in schools unless there's something that's pornographic or anything like that. Okay. Uh, well, so, yeah, I mean, I tend to agree with you. Uh, I don't consider the uh, passages that this parent group has an issue with to be pornographic. So I uh, I don't feel that this one should be banned. 800-848-9222. Joan is in New Jersey. Hello, Joan. Hi, Frank. Um, I read Anne Frank's book a number of years ago. Not this graphic novel, but the book. And, um, I mean, I don't even remember anything about her talking about being attracted to a girl or describing her body parts. As far as I remember, she was somewhat attracted to another boy who was living there in hiding with, with them, with another family. Now, why can't they read the original book? It's not that hard to understand. Oh, well, yeah, it was written by an adolescent. So, uh, basically, this book, I'm surprised that her her family even agreed to this. Because, basically, this person has stolen her story and written it out. Uh, so, I'm sorry, I just don't approve of even that. Okay, well, thank you, Joan. Yeah, I mean... Uh... The person didn't steal her story. This is her story. This is what she wrote. They are reprinting large portions of it in graphic novel form. So, And this was done with the authorization of the Anne Frank Foundation. So um, that's that. Hey, I'm going to uh, I'm going to link to an article on this if you want to read more. Additional context. I mean, I think I gave you all the pertinent details on this. But if you want to read more about this, you can go to Facebook.com slash Morano fan. That is Facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O fan. Coming up, I am very excited about this. We are going to be joined by um, Darcy Weir who we've talked to before, and uh, we're going to be talking with a New York Times bestselling author, lecturer, and TV personality uh, about a new project which I just finished watching right before the show, and it is wild. Everyone knows about the Apollo 11 mission. Uh, that landed on the moon and so forth. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind and so forth. Everybody knows about that. What you may not know is that there are a lot of people involved in the Apollo mission that are on record describing UFO sightings. And ask yourself the question, why don't you know that? Do you not know that because it's not true? Or do you not know it because certain people are trying to keep that from you? That's what this new documentary that I just watched on Amazon explores. And we're going to talk with Darcy Weir, documentary filmmaker, and Mike Barra, New York Times bestselling author and TV personality, straight ahead.
The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Other Side of Midnight presents The Midnight Files. the show last last night I saw a film that I have been very very eager to see it's called Secret Space UFOs Apollo 1 through 11 now um I know a lot of people listen to this show because we talk a lot about space and science and things of that nature I know a lot of other people listen to the show because we talk a lot about UFOs And this is one of those areas where those two areas are colliding because there is incredible evidence presented in this documentary that there are very real UFO sightings on the part of the participants in the Apollo mission. It's available on Amazon. I highly recommend it. Here's a trailer to Secret Space UFOs. So, I mean, it makes sense that there would be, there are sightings here. Why wouldn't there be sightings out there? You know, I, I just, it's not my area of expertise. I don't dig into, I look into the phenomenon, and if it leads me to an astronaut, great. And, and if not, you know, so I just know that what I, that what Faye Ann Potter told me, about her brother, Buzz Aldrin, that they saw something on the way to the moon. Well, we, we pulled most of these images from sources like the Apollo Lunar Surface Journal, which is uh, actually drawing them from the scanned, high-resolution NASA versions of all the handheld photography. Accomplishing this was considerably less simple. It meant showing that a brand-new spacecraft, far more complicated than its predecessors, would operate so well it could be trusted to take men well beyond near-Earth orbit. We were that first crew that was going to get a chance to fly this vehicle and test this vehicle that was going to take human beings to the moon. Let's say we know all of these implications, and and let's say it's 1960, and we know some of these things, right? Well, you think of the world back then. The world of 1960, no way would that world be ready for some of the intellectual realities of what we think we know now. 
Although it is presumed that the recordings were destroyed or lost, the transcriptions were made at NASA by the woman shown in this image and others. Which we might get in the mainstream media, the fact that we're not alone sometime in the future. These congressional hearings in which experiencers are going to... The film is Secret Space UFOs. Very uh, pleased to be joined by uh, someone that's been on this program before, Darcy Weir, documentary filmmaker, who's the man behind this film, as well as Mike Barra, New York Times bestselling author in his own right and a TV personality. Gentlemen, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, Frank, thanks for having me. This is Darcy speaking. And Mike, welcome aboard. It's great to have you on board as well. Thanks. It's great to be here. I appreciate it. Uh, So, Darcy, let me begin with you. I I just played folks a a trailer and gave a little bit of an explanation. But what is this documentary about? Why would you want to make it? Yeah, well, I've been making this documentary and a couple other documentaries in a series called Secret Space UFOs and then something else so this one's called secret space ufos apollo 1 to 11 um and i really wanted to isolate things that happened not only from a technical science stand uh standpoint you know for each of these apollo missions uh but i also wanted to expose anomalies ufo encounters you know strange things that astronauts were describing seeing um and there's three different ways that we uncover that we either look at the dac motion picture footage we look at the hasselblad photography or uh we look at the transcripts from the apollo missions that were recorded on something like a black box flight recorder um, that was installed into each of these Apollo capsules when they were on their missions. And um, yeah, I mean, I just wanted to meticulously go through each mission and highlight, you know, here's some really cool scientific stuff that we did because believe it or not, these missions were groundbreaking and we did go to the moon and I get all kinds of crazy flat earthers and, uh, you know, folks that are, moon landing deniers but i firmly believe we did go i just think that what the astronauts truly saw and what they truly experienced when they were out there in space and on the way to the moon and on the moon was heavily censored from the public and most of it was spun in a kind of like early public relations campaign Mm to disinform the public from what possibly is out there in reality, you know, UFOs and structures that might be from, you know, either a different civilization or um, a a highly advanced version of us that we've forgotten about, uh, which, you know, that could be discussed in a further documentary, but we kind of scratched the surface on weird stuff that was found on the moon in pictures and stuff. Um, yeah. And I just wanted to highlight it. I think it's a really fun sure. uh, theory and, and story. And and it's been covered before in certain documentaries, but I think I did it in a very different 
way and and I really went in depth uh you know and put everything in uh you know hour and 40, 44 minute treatment absolutely it's uh, almost perfect i'll give you my one lone complaint a little later mike barra uh, you're a legitimate aerospace engineering consultant you're a lecturer uh, co-author of uh, several new york times bestseller including dark mission the secret history of nasa uh what was your role with respect to this documentary well darcy asked me to be in it as uh, you know, one of the on-camera experts. I mean, I've been studying the moon for uh, upwards of 20 years. I used to have an old web page back in the early days called, you know, the Lunar Anomalies homepage, and I'd just been studying it forever and got involved with Richard C. Hoagland, who was doing a lot of um, moon analysis, and a lot of the things we talked about were actually his discoveries in the, the documentary. And, you know, I mean, look, I, I agree with Darcy 100%. I, I don't think um, people like to talk about how we fake the moon landings. I mean, I was involved in a show for the Science Channel where I had to play the, the crazy conspiracy guy and pretended to believe all this stuff. And it's really just, it's nonsense. What what people don't get is that, you know, the reticence of the Apollo astronauts, especially when they talk about that Apollo 11 press conference, was not because they faked anything. It was because they went there and they were shaken by what they saw, shaken by what they experienced. And we're forced, basically, I think, at gunpoint to make sure that they didn't tell anybody about it. So, gentlemen, let's talk about that. Let's talk about those initial Apollo (laughs) heroes, folks like uh, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong, uh, names that are still household names. um, And in case of Buzz Aldrin, still making a lot of news whenever he says anything about space. Why wouldn't they have been honest about what they saw? Uh, you both say uh, that essentially it was at gunpoint. What what could they threaten Neil Armstrong or Buzz Aldrin with that would get them not to tell the truth about what they saw? Well, I think well, um, I mean, I, oh, you go I'm for it, Mike. Sorry. Well, okay, I was just going to say, I, I think it was more not so much their personal security as it was their families. I mean, there were there there were these security agreements, and they were patriots. You have to understand, these guys were test pilots. You know, there there isn't much true patriotism in this country anymore. But back in those days, these guys were absolutely dedicated, and and the government asked them for the sake of humanity not to expose some of the things they've seen. Because remember, we were living in the the post Brookings Institute. Uh, world where they had done this study right when NASA was commissioned that said, if you tell people that you run into aliens out there, or even if you find ruins of ancient alien bases, you're going to shatter the the very bricks that hold civilization together. So these guys were asked not to say anything. And, and I think they didn't, you know, a lot of cases it was patriotism and maybe a little bit of fear, but it, it, there were there were reasons why they did what they did. They were military men, and um, I think that's part of the reasons why they were selected. I think, yeah, just to add to that, um, you know, you think it's really hard for people to imagine when you ask that question, Frank, why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they just say what they saw and, and what they heard and experienced? And I, I think in today's day and age, 2023, we have all these pilots coming forward now, you know, both commercial and military, uh, Navy men, all kinds of personnel from uh, the military world saying, 
I saw something, right? It's cool. It's legitimate. It's something that's interesting to the public. But back then, there was a huge stigma. You were labeled a, a crackpot. L literally, you were labeled as somebody that was not mentally competent. And um, there were th certain things you just didn't discuss. UFOs and, you know, things that were not mainstream discussions like the Bible and, uh, you know, anything that was out of the ordinary was considered taboo. Well, that's, that's not a polite dinner talk, sir or ma'am. Let's, uh, let's stop discussing this. You're upsetting my wife, uh, whatever, you know what I mean? So sure. th this is the 1960s, right? Um, right up till 1969 is what I cover in this film um, from, you know, from the fifties with uh, you know, the Gemini project was what gave birth to the Apollo manned missions. And um, you just have to realize that time was so different. And on top of that um, UFOs, if anybody is just a, a a small researcher on the subject, you realize this was a super classified subject back then in the military world, uh, highly classified. This was more classified than the atomic bomb. Uh, for, based on what papers we've seen come out of um, certain programs and, and, and people have talked about since then, we've had you know, 75 years plus to study things regarding the secrecy of UFOs, right? And so when you add that complexity of that UFOs are a classified subject um, and it's possibly destabilizing to the world paradigm, uh, you know, running on fossil fuels and so on and so forth, because it, it begs the question, well, what are those things running mm. on? Um, well, then you really have to shut up. And I think when you're talking about these Navy and Air Force pilots, which all of the, you know, three of the pilots from the Apollo program were Air Force, the rest were Navy. You're talking about guys were, that were probably read into what was classified and what was not. And you were debriefed and you were told never to talk about this stuff when you're doing your press tour. And so they were really careful, you know, they looked very nervous when they landed post uh, Apollo 11, uh, you know, and they literally say in their very first famous press conference, which I have clips of in the documentary, we're, we're going to do this a little bit differently. We're going to go off of most of the material that we've uh, got in our slides presentation. Well, why would you want to do that? Why wouldn't you just leave questions completely open to the world mm. to ask, you know, like a real ask me anything AMA. They didn't want that. They wanted it to be more of a scripted conference because they wanted to only discuss certain things. And, uh, you know, I think that deeply disturbed Neil Armstrong because he was a highly intelligent um, thought leader. And he didn't talk to the press or public a lot. He kept very quiet, probably because he didn't want to lie to them. Um, and arms, uh, you know, Buzz Aldrin, I think he has no qualms with lying to the, the press. 
I think he's a very intelligent, mentally hardened person. And uh, he knows he swore an oath, probably. And when it's not right to talk about these things, he's not going to talk about it. And he's going to debunk it or make it a joke whenever he can. And so, and if people just tuning in, uh, you've got to see uh, this uh, documentary, Secret Space UFOs. Darcy Weir is here. Mark uh, uh, Mike Barra is here. Let me ask you about someone that you guys do feature footage of in the documentary, and that is Edgar Mitchell, the sixth man to walk on the moon. And it's clear, based on the footage, uh, mostly archival footage that you feature in the film of Mitchell, that he was a believer in UFOs and the fact that they, there had been E.T. encounters with people on this planet. Why, in your view, uh, would Mitchell be so willing to talk about this openly, whereas the other Apollo astronauts would not? Well, you know, Mitchell is interesting. I mean, the guy was born in Roswell, New Mexico. Okay, so mm. so this is a guy that, that's got this whole alien background thing. And, and I think that, you know, in his case... Part of it was, um, how do I get noticed? I mean, part of it was ego because he wanted to be different. He wanted to be the out there guy because, you know, everybody remembers Neil and Buzz. And, you know, how many people remember the Apollo 12 crew? <laughs> Not very many. Val Bean and Pete Conrad. But how many people remember the Apollo 14 crew? Al Shepard was part of it and, and, and Ed Mitchell was there. So I think there's that aspect to it. It's just normal human stuff. But he was into a lot of really esoteric stuff. He was into he did psychic experiments on the moon where he tried to project an image in his head. And he had a bunch. It was like one of the first remote viewing experiments. Wow. And he had a bunch of friends on Earth in different places. Uh, you know, he said, at a particular time, I'm going to think about a certain thing and, and draw a picture of what you get. And, I, and I, I forget what it was, a bird or a flower or something, but everybody got the same thing. So he was um, he was very into this kind of stuff. And he was a guy that that uh, kind of went his own way, I think, in a way to make more of a name for himself, partly after he got back. And and because, you know, but he he was also very, very strongly against the research that I've done, the research that people like Richard Hoagland have done, uh, Ken Johnson, some of the people that are in the, the documentary, you know, oh, there was nothing artificial there. We didn't see anything. And I, I think that was his programming. So in, in some ways, he was really out there. In other ways, he was very, um, very held back. But he was like a lot of the astronauts, you know, trying to get things out. And I mean, look at John Glenn. I mean, John Glenn had to go on an episode of Frasier and, and, and speak into the camera you know, supposedly when nobody was paying attention and tell everybody the truth about how they saw UFOs in space and it terrified them and they saw them in their nightmares and all this stuff, which was, you know, completely out of context of the episode he was in and it wasn't funny on top of everything else. So these guys have all tried different ways to get the real story out in ways that wouldn't get them in trouble or break their NDAs. Interesting. Uh, absolutely interesting. Anything you would add there, um, Darcy? Yeah, I think... Um, you know, Dr. Mitchell, what we did show in the documentary was his discussion with CNN regarding, you know, his work in trying to break the disclosure of UFOs around the world. Um, in that earlier interview, he was discussing how he went to the Pentagon uh, and he sat down with a high ranking military official um, and they debriefed him, they being 
Dr. Uh, Greer, Stephen Greer, who you know formed the Disclosure Project way back when, 2001, um, and people allege even today that that briefing may or may not happen, but I don't think Edgar Mitchell would have lied about that. What happened after that briefing was uh, essentially that high-ranking military official, uh, I think is Admiral Wilson, he chased up with within the Pentagon uh, whether this secret special access UAP or UFO research program was really going on. Uh, and he got an answer that it was going on, but the personnel and the you know uh, military official that was running that said, you don't have the need to know. You don't have the access and kind of told them to buzz off, right? So that's an interesting story. It's still going on today. And Edgar Mitchell made it kind of his quest to you know, be a speaking figure at all these conferences to do with UFOs and such uh, to try and push for disclosure from the government. He rallied behind Dr. Greer and gave him support and stuff. And that that's pretty huge to have the fourth man, sorry, the sixth Six, man, right. Apollo 14, um, to walk ever on the moon, back up your, you know, your theory that the government's holding back information or the military is holding back information about UFOs and UAP, which means we're not alone in the universe. Somebody's visiting us here, right? The reason why I think he might have been a little bit more conservative about the moon stuff, you know, Mike kind of alluded that uh, that might have been part of his programming. So there's a working theory here that some it's possible that some astronauts were kind of hypnotized post missions to not speak about this stuff. Um, and then there's others, other astronauts that maybe that didn't really work on. And those types of astronauts would include maybe Buzz Aldrin, who's just too mentally fit to, to be, you know, hypnotized hmm. into doing anything. So they're just threatened. You know, so there's a there's kind of like a mix, a melange of tactics to make sure that this information doesn't get out from these, you know, uh, extremely provocative adventurers that most people in the world look up to. And if these adventurers speak out about certain things, most people take it seriously. Right. So anyways, I think in a certain way that programming kind of failed with Edgar, because he ended up latching on to the UFO subject, which is directly related, right? And um, and he wanted to be an advocate for that to to be out there in the public for people to know about it. Uh, lastly, gentlemen, and, and there's a lot that we haven't gotten to, especially as it relates to uh, lunar objects and things of that nature. But um, there are a lot of skeptics that are going to be listening to us right now. And uh, saying that um, you guys are essentially trying to make money by the public's fascination <laughs> with this, uh, making movies and writing books on this subject and push, pushing a false narrative and a false science. Uh, address the skeptics in our audience that might believe that. 
Well, there's always going to be a bunch of jealous people who aren't on TV and don't write books and don't have people, you know, listen to them speak that are jealous of you. And there's nobody who's got a better life than you do who's jealous of you like that, you know, who, who, who doesn't say those kinds of things. But it's like there's no there's no money in this business for, for guys like me to speak of unless you're unless your name is Eric Von Daniken or David Icke. You're not making very much money doing these conferences and stuff. It's uh, it's something you do because you care about getting the truth out. Mm. And so, you know, my response to, to those people is get a life, will you? <laughs> I would I would add yeah like you know I've spoken once at a conference uh it was UFO mega conference in the middle of covid 2021 it was a horrible experience uh loved the conference runners loved the fact that they they invited me but I actually spent my time on stage speaking about a previous documentary that I did where I was trying to debunk the very central figure to mm. that documentary, his name's Phil Schneider. I was basically saying to the crowd, this guy wasn't legit, but his story was provocative. And that's why I became a documentary filmmaker, because I wanted to follow these provocative stories and see if there was any truth to them. Right. Uh, so I am not out here to make a f- big buck. I'm, I'm not holding... And I got paid 500 bucks to speak at that conference and, you know, took the worst flights of my life. Uh, but basically, <laughs> I'm not trying to say I'm a, I'm not becoming a millionaire off of this sure. documentary either. You know, the few people that reach out to me after watching the doc and say, whoa, I learned a lot that I didn't know before. And there were things that I knew before that, you know, you actually shocked me and showed even more. Those people reaching out to me, that's who I do it for. People yeah. that like want to learn yeah. about this stuff. And absolutely I'm not doing I'm not like, yeah, everybody's gotta make a fucking oh, living. Sorry, I swore. Yeah. Everybody's gotta make a living, right? Uh, you right. Know, whether you're shoveling SH or you're writing a book, I'm not gonna like be mean to people for shoveling SH. Um, I'll leave them alone. I'm actually doing work. Yeah, here. I, I'm, you know, gentlemen, I, I, it I'm didn't sorry. Take two minutes. I, to make this. I have to run. I hope everybody checks out uh, the documentary "Secret Space UFOs: Apollo One Through 11. It's available on Amazon. My lone complaint about this documentary, and people will see it, is that I didn't get to narrate it. I'm telling you, if there's a sequel chronicling the secret space program after 1969, I want to throw my hat in the ring to narrate this one. Uh, Heck yeah. The narrator did a fine job, but I was envious that I didn't get to participate. Thank you, gentlemen. Good luck with the documentary. Thanks, Thanks, Frank. Uh, It's Secret Space UFOs, available on Amazon. Highly recommend. You want to comment? You can. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. I was all right for a while. I could smile. Hey! Uh-huh. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I went way long there with uh, those gentlemen, Darcy Weir and Mike Barra. So uh, we'll take your calls after the top of the hour. And then next hour, we'll chat with uh, Malachi McCourt. A lot of other fun stuff to get to as well. Six open lines if you want to comment. 800-848-9222. That is 800-848-9222. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Let me take you back in time to an email. Now, I've read this email before. It just is a shame that I need to keep reading this repeatedly. Uh, This is an email that was sent by our uh, chief of engineering, our vice president of engineering for Red Apple Media, the great Dan Herschel, who does a great job. He's here all hours of the day. There have been times when we've been knocked off the air or other people have been knocked off on the off the air. And I see him here at 1230, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning, even though I know he's been in since 7 in the morning. I mean, when you're a chief engineer of a radio station like this, it's almost like you're a firefighter. You're on call 24 hours a day. He does a great job. And I've known Dan a long time. He didn't invite me to his birthday party three years ago, but that's fine. Not at all. I mean, I forgot all about it, practically. But anyway, he sends out this email uh, because when we moved into this space, there was a lot of construction, a lot of stuff that needed to be built out, a lot of stuff that was built out. And it's a great facility now, and I think they're still making some improvements. And so Dan sends out this email November of uh, 2020, and he gives an update. To the whole floor, everybody that works here gives updates on the pantry. And basically, these are, this is all mostly common sense stuff. Once the pantry and kitchen is open, no food will be permitted in the on-air wing. You may have a water and a closed-top bottle, but no food. We don't want crumbs all over the place. We don't want roaches. We don't want mice. All common sense stuff. Update on the ladies' room. Update on the men's room. And then... An update on the studio bathroom. This is what it says of the studio bathroom. Studio bathroom. This bathroom will be card access only and is intended for air staff. Right. The purpose of this room is to minimize time away from studios for on-air talent and immediate support staff, board op and screener. If you're not on the air or you don't work in a control room, please use the bathrooms in the hall. This includes management. That's what it says. Um, some other updates. Finally, 
please use common sense and only use the studio bathroom for number one. All other needs should be accommodated in the hallway bathrooms. Um, fine. Now, in the last two and a half years since I received that email, I have done exactly that. And you know what? It's worked out great for me. Worked out great. A minute ago, I went to use this studio restroom because, you know, I'm drinking a lot of water here and a lot of tea. And, you know, I needed to urinate. So I went down the hall with the intention of doing just that. And I see, all right, this is going to be problematic. I see there's a whole bunch of toilet paper in there, meaning that someone did not do that. And I urinate anyway, nice and clear because of all the water that I'm drinking, a very healthy color. And then I press and hold the lever to flush the toilet so that the toilet paper vanquishes and so that the only thing left is water and now my urine. So that's that's that. Now... At the end of me holding this flush button, because it's one of those things, it's a low-flow flush uh, toilet, so it only flushes while you're holding the thing. At the end of me flushing the thing, the level of water goes up. Oh, my God. Which is precisely what I feared, because someone was in there and not only did not adhere to this directive, which all of us are supposed to adhere to, but they then used an enormous amount of toilet paper. I don't know how someone could have thought that that was an appropriate amount of toilet paper to throw into what is a low-flow toilet. So right now, I just spent uh, three minutes after urinating trying to declog... The toilet with a plunger. Wow. Because someone did not have the courtesy to adhere to this rule. And oh I goodness. don't believe that I was successful because it is still the water still goes up. So that's where that's where we are right now. Why people keep doing this is beyond me. But here we are. So um when we go to break, we're gonna to talk to Malachi McCourt in a little bit. I'm going to try again because I'm not bad with a plunger. I'm not exactly a professional plumber, but I'm not bad. But this is a a situation where we may have to alert somebody that there's a situation going on here that the toilet is clogged because of people using too much toilet paper. Hate that guy. So that's where we are now. 800-848-9222. Uh, 800-848-9222. Malachi McCourt uh, coming up in about five minutes. Still alive uh, and sounding great, by the way. I talked to him yesterday, and he is spry, and uh, he is sounding good and energetic. If you're not up on Malachi McCourt, you probably know him as a storyteller, a best-selling author, a radio talk show host, whatever the case may be. Well, he was in hospice. He's got a whole bunch of different types of cancer. He's got a bunch of other different ailments, a very weak heart, and he's 91 on top of that. And they put him in hospice, and essentially they said, 
if you don't die, we're going to ask you to leave hospice. Well, he didn't die. So they asked him to leave, and he's he's back home, and he's going to join us in a minute uh, for an update on his situation. Matt Blaze, any, any comments on the, the, the toilet situation at all? I know I wasn't in there because I was in the control room the whole time, but I would be allowed to be in there. Well, because I work in the control room. Right, as long as it's for number one. Right, yeah. I would never do anything else besides that in that bathroom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I know it wasn't me. Well, okay, but, I mean, uh, Kenneth, you have you know, anything to say? You know, it's funny, Frank, because that, during that whole spiel that you went on, I was thinking, it's funny, because I walked down the hall after I saw you coming back, and I walked into the bathroom, and immediately I noticed that the water level was Definitely above the average level. And I promptly turned around and walked straight down the hall to go to the hallway bathroom because I was not going to deal with that. Yeah, well, right. This is the problem, right? That that when something needs dealing with, I'm the one that deals with it, right? When When problems need running away from, right, then that's why, that's why... Other folks. Are well, there. here's the thing: the person, whoever the culprit is that did this, should have been the one to fix the problem. Right. Well, that I agree with that. I agree with that. But also, I would want to know why are you using this amount of toilet paper and I have no in idea. a low flow toilet environment? I mean, you see what goes on with that toilet bowl. It's yeah. Not... You you have to hold it down right. all the time, no matter what. No even matter on, what. Even on a normal day, right? You got to hold it down for a few seconds for it to get some flow right. and wash everything down. So I, I'm going to try to deplunge again, but I think ultimately we may have to inform uh, Dan or someone that uh, that we may need professional help here, in more ways than one for some folks. All right, Malachi McCourt is here. Uh, we're going to uh, chat with him about uh, the fact that he refuses to die, which is certainly a good thing. Uh, he, man is a national treasure. In fact, he's an international treasure, having grown up in Ireland, but being a New York City institution, an American institution, an American icon for so many years. We'll get into it uh, with him about a wide variety of subjects straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Special pleasure to chat with one of my favorite guests because he is a master storyteller. He's been telling stories for years on the radio, on the printed page, from behind a bar, sometimes even through his work as an actor along some of the best uh, comedic stars in history and even on some of the best known soap operas in history. 
But these days, he's probably best known not for that recent New York Times profile on him a couple of weeks ago, but for the fact that he's a survivor. And it's been well known for years that he has survived six of his other brothers. Well, now he has actually outlived hospice. I am not joking. As he told us last year, he was scheduled to be booted out of hospice in November if he didn't die. And lo and behold, at least at the time that we began this phone call, he is still alive. And I am very pleased to welcome back the one and only Malachi McCord. Hello, Malachi. Hello there, Frank, my son. And uh, it it is very odd to be... uh, Nowadays, I do wake up and I see the ceiling, and I wasn't supposed to. And I don't know what death is about, but is it was it the bells of hell go tingling for you, but not for me? Oh, death, where is thy stingling or grave thy victory? If you meet the undertaker. Or the young man from the crew have a pint with what's left over. Now I say goodbye to you. That should get your show canceled. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, now it sound pretty good for a guy that's supposed to be dead. Uh, you're in your you're in your nineties uh, now. Yes, Malachi. I'm ninety one, gone on uh, ninety two. As I alluded to, you have been in addition to uh, probably one of the best Brooklyn accents around uh, because everyone knows you are Brooklyn born. Um, it, you are um, you are now out of hospice. They actually do kick you out of hospice. Most people don't live long enough to find that out. Give us the uh, the secret, Malachi. What's the secret to your longevity and being able to outlive your stay in hospice? Well, if you um, if you uh, if you if, if you take it easy on your life. Uh, and and just say, I just live uh, one day at a time. I mean, I don't know when I'm going to die. But the fact is, uh, Frank, this amazing thing is that death is, it hits us all at one point or another. There's no escaping it. So it is that I'm happily married. I have uh, children and grandchildren. I have lots of good friends, uh, John McDonough and myself, on uh, on uh, WBAI on uh, on Sundays, and yourself now. Once in a while, we we have a chat, and you're very very tolerant, and you 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 keep an open mind on things. And I'm 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 delighted to be your friend. But anyway, the whole thing is that that just. Uh, it's just a matter of taking it easy. I mean, I have loads of diseases and uh, conditions, and uh, I, <laughs> I should be dead. But uh, I'm just—I'm uh, not going to do it. I, 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 yeah. Some people don't wish me well, but anyway, I don't have to. I, I, I'm glad that not everybody has the power of death over me. So. Um, I just have a good time now, and uh, that's all. I hear from you. We have a chat, and off we go. 
Uh, Maliki, throughout history, there have been numerous instances of people faking their own death for one reason or another, um, mostly to get out of paying bills or something along those lines. In fact, I know that you tried that from time to time uh, in your days as a uh, struggling Bible salesman, writing deceased (laughs) on a number of your bills to get out of having to pay them. Is there you have told us before about the various ailments that you've had a weak heart, a, a disease called IBM, and we don't mean the computer company, a couple of different types of cancer. I know you're not necessarily a practicing Catholic anymore, but is there any chance you'd like to use this interview as an opportunity for confession to let people know that you've actually been faking all of these ailments so that you could live through hospice and just get even more attention? Well, I am... um... I'm an atheist, thank God. <laughs> and um I just uh, decided that I'm not uh, I'm not I'm not ever ready these days to die. And it's um I I just um, I enjoy life and it's terrific. And the other thing about it, Frank, is that I don't think there is a more fortunate person on this earth than me to 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 find real i mean we used to scoff at love and that kind of thing and uh, but i found out that the thing i do is uh, i tell my wife every day diana i love you start my day with that then i tell my kids um siobhan and maliki and connor and cormac and my stepdaughter nina I love you, and uh, <laughs> I, it, it's um, you know laughter is is really mm. you know this uh, it's a cliche I know that laughter is the best medicine, but I have such fun in my life now. I mean I'm I can't walk as you said you know I have this IBM I'm stuck in a wheelchair, and uh, and so it gets a bit uh, at times I get a little discouraged looking at the ceiling but gently speaking i'm uh, i'm okay and that's the, the only thing is accepting what is and i can't change the world and and people get so upset you know they call me a commie and a lefty and all that kind of old nonsense well what, what i am is that i I uh, I like it. I was born here in Brooklyn, as you said, and was taken to Ireland when uh, when we were children. And the twin, my sister died, uh, an infant, and then two other, the twin boys, Eugene and Oliver, they died in Ireland because my mother and I had a breakdown. And then two more were born, and we all grew up to adulthood. And they're all dead now. And the other thing is is just simply say what it is that happens to you at the end of your life. You die. That's it. You're not passing away or passing on or leaving us or gone now or with the Lord or with... And I used to think it's a big fat people talking about in the arms of Jesus 
there he was, that little fella. Should they kill him if he was in, 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 in his arms? He seems to... I mean, he, he died for love, I think, they tell me, but I don't know. I don't want him dying for me. I have my own death to, to uh, have fun with, you see. And so I don't need him to do it for me. So... You alluded to a number of early tragedies that you faced, uh, the death of multiple siblings that you had to deal with as a child. Anybody that's read your own books, including your memoir on death, Death Not Be Need Not Be Fatal, which is just a wonderfully hilarious look at death and dying, uh, or your brother Frank's books, Angela's Ashes or Tis, both of which are considered some of the uh, best-reviewed memoirs of all time, literally. Anybody that is familiar with your early life knows that you experienced a fair share of tragedy. Your father's alcoholism alone is something that uh, I think a lot of people struggle to, would struggle to overcome. And yet you're uh, sitting here laughing and talking about how often you laugh and how much joy you get out of life. Do you feel the early tragedies you faced as a young person made you more likely to be able to laugh through tough times, or do you laugh in spite of those early tragedies, Malachi? I'm uh, um, a good question. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure uh, why it. Uh, the whole thing. I mean, life is such. A, two people die every second. And that's, you know, you and I now have been on the air here for the last 10 minutes. And uh, we, we're we here. But somewhere else, two people have died, and two people have died. There's about uh, every second or 60, 120 people die every minute. 7,200 every hour. <laughs> no, not. Well, we better end this interview before we before we go on a murdering spree. That's the other thing that I have, Frank, is um, that I sort of regret that we were so poor that we, Frank and myself, left school when we were uh, thirteen, and we got we went to work as messenger boys, and I never did get an education as such, but I did get a love of reading, and that's uh, outside of uh, a great love for Diana and my family, but I just absolutely love being able to read. I like, to, I, 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 I love words. I love the, the, the texture of them, using them and uh, letting go of them, chewing them and going out and uh, and it's, I don't know how many words there are in that language, what, a half a billion, half a million? Uh, I don't, anyway, I have enough to get me through life. Okay. I, I think and you've uh, probably created a, new, a few new ones, which I certainly always admire. Um, Malachi, you're so associated with Ireland and Irish culture that I can't avoid asking you about one of the big news stories of the day, which is President Biden, who some people have described as the most Irish president since JFK, is actually in Ireland uh, right now. And um, he's there to celebrate the 
uh, anniversary of the Good Friday Accords and the peace that has held. Um, do you think that um, wh- why do you think that uh, the peace has held all these years as a result of these Good Friday Accords, whereas we see so many other conflicts around the world in places like Eastern Europe, the Middle East, where the uses and the ceasefire agreements, they seem so tenuous and so temporary. What do the Irish have right about peace that the rest of the world hasn't yet learned? It seems to me that now my father was from the north of Ireland, which is uh, this. People should understand that England, the English invaded Ireland in 11 something or other. They got with uh, one of their kings got permission from the Pope to invade Ireland because he said they were falling away from the faith that St. Patrick brought. Now, Maywin Suckett is St. Patrick's name. His name is not Patrick at all. And he only took the name because it's derived from the Latin, Patrice, which is father. And that's, that's the way. So he came and he brought Catholicism. And uh, that lasted for about uh, six or seven hundred years. And then the Irish were decided to go back to what they were before, pagans. And I am essentially a pagan. I believe everything, and I believe nothing. (laughs) I don't have to do anything like that. And uh, I don't believe in an afterlife either. It's not my business, but I don't. And that's why death doesn't bother me in the slightest. And uh, I, I will. I, I might even try and get back, you know, to talk to people after I die. But anyway, that's not my business. I'm not there yet. So anyway, I'm wandering off again now, and, and that's my my <laughs> my wonder. The thing is that I have a load of books uh, still here to be read, and uh, and I have love in my life, and that is it. Now, people say they love uh, their country, and uh, and I, I say I don't want to be rude, you know, but you can't love a country. That's impossible. I mean, what you do, get, get and uh, go up and kiss the Palisades or something? <laughs> <laughs> uh, You'd have to have a big mouth. Yeah. <laughs> It would cer- it's certainly a very different type of lovemaking than I suspect uh, many of our of our listeners are are used to. Uh, talking with Malachi McCord, a uh, best-selling author, longtime radio talk show host, one of the best-regarded talk show TV talk show guests of all time, and somebody that has been in a lot of movies over the years, a lot of TV shows over the years as an actor, a former Bible salesman, former bar bartender, former bar owner. Uh, Malachi, you've talked about your uh, struggles with drinking yourself over the years. In that New York yeah. Times profile, you talked about the fact that uh, your one of your earliest appearances on The Tonight Show with Jack Parr, you were totally soused and uh, you were so good that they ended up having you back. Uh, you've now been sober for about four decades. I, and like a lot of people that choose to become sober, I'm assuming you got sober for a pretty good reason. 
Are there are there ever days when you miss drinking? Uh, when you're gearing up for a talk show like this one, do you ever think, "Oh, I wish I was drunk for this appearance"? When you're at a summer barbecue, do you ever think, uh, "Okay, a cold beer would go really well with this hamburger"? Are there ever are there ever days where you say, "You know, I really wish I could just have one drink"? Yes, uh, there are days and uh, and nights. Uh, that I wish I could uh, have a have, as we say in our a gargle, <laughs> and uh, but I uh, I can't uh, handle it. That's all there is to it. I can't handle booze of any sort. So therefore, it's either booze it up and die, or don't don't booze and live. So therefore, I've chosen to live. Yeah, and that, that it's as simple as that. I cannot drink. It's deadly. It's a poison to me. Now, people have to understand the nature of alcoholism. My father was alcoholic, and I, of course, I, I, I wouldn't. Uh, I just wouldn't. How could he do that to us? He deserted us and left my mother with, uh, you know, children, and 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 we were starving in Ireland. And I don't have the romantic idea of Ireland either. And we were uh, fortunate. My father and mother met here. And I think she had to get, they had to get married, as they say, in those days, because it was five months after their marriage that Frank was born. (laughs) And then I was born 11 months after that. And children kept coming. But it was... um, it is. Um, it, it is the the the, the business of. I, I didn't think I could become an alcoholic, and for a long time I didn't. And now, <laughs> would you believe it? I I got um, I got into the bar business. Uh, some people, uh, when I was uh, I was working on the docks, and uh, I used to go. Sometimes I'd sneak into a theater because I was fascinated by theater. And then I decided I'd try to be an actor. So I went backstage one night at an off-Broadway show. They were doing three one-act plays by John Millington Singh. And uh, I thought, my God, wouldn't it be great to be an actor? So I talked to the guy afterwards, and he said, will you read for us? And I thought it was a literary test. I didn't know <laughs> that was the that's what an audition was called. I, I didn't know the difference between an actor, a director, or, 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 or a producer. So I did. I and, and then they gave me a part, and then off I went. And then Jack Parr, Tom O'Malley was the booker there. He was fascinated with my story, so he booked me, and I. I was as the flutered uh, when I went on the show with, with Parr. And the next day, there was the papers were saying, these used to review the Tonight Show. They said, the Irishman on the Tonight Show last night was hilarious. And I said, oh, they're talking about me. Because <laughs> I didn't remember what I said or what was. Well, I know it was, I was... I was not sober on that show. Well, anyway, he, he asked me. He, I was asked back so many, many times. Then, then Merv Griffin used to have me on his show. I never got on with jo- Johnny Carson 
I was at a uh, party one night where he was there, and do you know there's an English actor, actor named Terry Thomas? Did you know? Who yes, he is? yes, I, I did. Yes. Yeah, he's kept gap in his seat. So anyway, Terry and I were singing, and uh, it was um, a new man. What's his name? Carlson says, "Shut up." <laughs> I thought he was joking. Uh, so we kept singing. I said, shut up, he said. So I dived at him and, and, and cut him up against the wall and said, if you don't shut up, your head will go through that wall. So that, that anyway, so that's why I was never under the I, I guess so. I guess, some people say Johnny could hold a, ju- a grudge. Talking with Malachi McCourt, I alluded to your bar, Malachi's, which was here in New York City on Third uh, Avenue, I believe. And right, right, and became it's a stone's throw from where our radio station is now, and it really became the first singles bar in New York. Why did it become such a hangout of so many celebrities and so many comics? I know that you've written and and we've spoken before about people like Jonathan Winters, who used to hang out there. And uh, even uh, Grace Kelly found herself in Malachy's one time. What was it about Malachy's? Was it just the force of personality of its namesake that led it to attract such uh, larger-than-life wits? Well, the... the, the Women's Hotel was around the corner. O- only, you know, they used to just women stayed in it. And uh, they, the single young things used to come in. And most of the bars on Third Avenue was a whole lot of them. Every time you uh, passed it, there was shamrocks and harps and all kinds of dopey ersatz, Irish crap in their <laughs> windows and and people would say sure, sure, come on knock it off i don't speak that way but anyway i i i said women can come into my bar and they don't have to be escorted ah. so that was it the single ladies came in and they were supposed to be back in the hotel and uh at by 11 so they would go back and then they would apparently sneak out the back door and come back to the bar. And uh, that was how it, they became a great place for singles. I, I, you were the Green Party candidate for governor back in uh, 2006. You were defeated in that election by a gentleman named Elliot Spitzer. I don't know whatever became of Elliot Spitzer, but he's no longer governor. Apparently he won uh, because he got more votes than you. What made you? Is that what happened? <laughs> what made Jesus. you? What made you decide to run for governor in general and to run for governor that year specifically? I thought uh, I thought it would be a, a bit of fun when the, the the they asked me to run, and I said okay. But I said uh, I would rather walk, and because uh, I never heard. I mean, in Ireland and England, they stand for office, and here they, they run. So I said, I'll uh, I'll stand for office. So anyway, I went around the, the states, and I had no idea what I was talking about. And the vastness of this state, 
and the the the, the amazing uh, different, the amazing people that, that I mean, the decent, great people. I went all the way to Buffalo and Boston, and I got, um, <laughs> I got, there was about 46,000 votes, and uh, Spitzer got uh, 4 million. So, uh, guess what? They declared him the winner. Uh, I mean, you were one of the first victims of a rigged election that there were. Hey, how do you think um, the state would have been different had you gotten elected governor that year, Maliki? Well, I would have, uh, I would have um, declared uh, every uh, every second day to be a holiday. Mm. And I would let people off from the, you know, who were in 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 my cabinet and so forth, and uh, and I would say that laughter is not uh, an option; it is a necessity, <laughs> and that's what it is. And I would make sure that everybody in my around me could sing, and that if they were going to present me with legislation. Sing it to me, baby. (laughs) I love it. I absolutely uh, love it. Talking with uh, Malachi McCourt. Well, Malachi, since uh, you're clearly too busy to to die these days, you're probably about due for another book these days. I know you uh, recently re-released your best-selling book, uh, Monk Swimming. Any chance there might be another book uh, coming out anytime soon, Malachi? Uh, well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm as I am now. Uh, you know, not I'm, I'm housebound. I mean, I can't go anywhere. I've, uh, I can't walk anymore, and it's uh, it's bloody well annoying. Mm. But I have great friends. I count you among them, if Thank I you. may. Same here. And and John McDonough, I'm happily married, um, ninety one, and. Uh, the body is failing, but it's an amazing thing about, I don't know why my brain seems to be functioning still, and I still, and, and the other thing about it too is that uh, I, I have great kids, and, and my, my love, my, the, the, the language, I love the language, I like I like the words, you know, and I I like I roll them around in my mouth. Mm. (laughs) But I don't, I don't, as I said, I I never went back to school. Frank did, and he became a great school teacher. But the thing was, the library came to Limerick in Ireland, and uh, that was the beginning of uh, of 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 heaven of reading. So that's so I still don't know. The difference. I don't know anything about grammar, for example, and I know very little about mathematics. I know one and one, but that's about. Don't don't ask me to go further than that. <laughs> well, let me ask you. Let me end with this, actually, Maliki. It, it, you've been a best-selling author. You've been a, a writer of, of terrific books. You've been a, a, a radio talk star, not only on WBAI, where you're still heard every week, but on WMCA, which was the premier talk station in New York back in the days. And you've been a, a bartender. 
Um, of all the things that uh, uh, that you that you've done with a great deal of success, radio, acting, bartending, writing. What would you say probably requires the most training and preparation out of those four? All of them. All so of I'm them. totally unqualified to be any of them. <laughs> <laughs> Malachi so. McCourt. I love it. Uh, absolutely outstanding. W- well done, my friend. It is always a treat to talk with you. I hope we can get together in person soon. Well, as we say in the Gaelic, which is the, my brother Frank was also Frank, but he was a, uh, uh, is the Gaelic. So, Acardia, a hundred thousand thanks. Frank, my friend. Uh, thank you, uh, Maliki. The uh, the appreciation and the gratitude is all uh, coming from this direction. Oh, before I let you go, let me ask, while President Biden is in Ireland, is there any specific Irish cuisine that you'd recommend that he that he check out? What is the go to national Irish dish? <laughs> I don't know, mashed potatoes. <laughs> there you go. Can't go wrong with that I, one. I, I mean, we we were so like we 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 were so hungry when I was a kid that every day anything we got, you know, we just get food from St. Vincent de Paul charity. You know, they give us a food docket. So I would say what I I love is the Irish bacon. And that that is that is always me is uh, I know it's not kosher, but uh, <laughs> I highly recommend it. You could uh, make it, make it kosher for the day. Duly noted. Like Thank you, Malachi McCourt. Let's talk soon. Okay, Frankie. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. side of midnight i'm frank morano this is led zeppelin if you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on the program join the facebook group uh just go to facebook.com slash groups slash radio morano there's discussions going on right now in there about book banning there's discussions going on in there about uh 
uh, AM radio. There's discussions going on in there about uh, uh, Rob McQueen and his nonprofit organization, Waves for Water. All sorts of uh, discussions going on in there still about the Dalai Lama. If you want to weigh in on anything that we have discussed so far, you can give us a call, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. And you can also find us on Twitter, at Frank Morano, that's Frank M O R A N O, and um, we are. Uh, I tweet a lot of interesting things. Uh, you know what I was tweeting yesterday. I'm not going to get into it now because I think we're going to do something um, in some depth on this next week. At least I hope we are. Is I tweeted a bunch of observations from some of these leaked documents regarding the Russia Ukraine war because journalists are still pouring through them. There's still all sorts of revelations. And one of the revelations is that we're we're spying on Zelensky in Ukraine. That's not a major surprise. We spy on our allies all the time. But one thing that I was a little surprised by, if these documents are genuine, and who knows if they are, but one of the things that I was a bit surprised by is that, have you been following all these anti-government protests in Israel over the attempts um, which are on hold right now? in Israel to uh, essentially sideline the Supreme Court or at least redefine the Supreme Court in Israel. Well, they're saying that the the Mossad, the Israeli intelligence agency, the Mossad, is actually responsible for organizing Israelis to participate in some of these protests. So if you want to see any of that stuff, you can... Uh, Find me on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank M O R A N O. I realize on Tuesdays we normally go through the mail in the second hour of the program. We're going to do that next hour after the thousand dollar minute. So stay tuned for that. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 five open lines. Leo on the Upper West Side has been waiting patiently. Hello, Leo. Leo. Yeah, Leo's asleep. And unlike Larry, he does not have an entertaining snore. Ed is in Babylon. Hello, Ed. Frank, I thank you and blame you. Uh, I I thank you for the content you have on your show, and I blame you because I think I developed insomnia because I don't want to go to sleep. (laughs) I want to keep on listening. Excellent. We love that, Ed. Thank you. Um, Here here we go. I have uh, two UFO stories. I want to say I'd love to spend a week with Mr. Malachi. He is a gem. He's a gem of a man. So I got two UFO stories and a question about that movie, which I just saw the trailer to. I'm very, very interested in it. Uh, I was a big Apollo fan as a kid. Uh, One UFO story is I'm driving northerly on Deer Park Avenue on Long Island here with a girlfriend. We talk, and then we have a moment of silence, and then we start talking again. And we realize, Frank, and this is at night, uh, that now we pass a building that we passed already, and we're driving southerly toward Babylon. And we could never explain that because I didn't take a U-turn. This other story, I had told you um, months ago, maybe if you remember, you don't want to repeat it, so you go on. Um, I'm out at Sound Beach, at Cedar Beach, and I'm sitting where, there with a friend on the rocks looking up at the sky. And you see this, I see this light go over. It looks like a plane, but it has no flashing lights on it. And I'm waiting to see the flashing lights, and it zigzags 
side to side, back and forth. It gets very bright, like 15 times as bright. Then it gets small and bright mm. and just goes boom and it disappears. And I say to myself, I'm the only one that saw that. She elbows me and she said, oh, my God, did you see that? And my question about that great movie, um, and if you could just whisper to me so nobody else, no other 5 million people on the radio can hear it, what what on the moon, because we know there might be a pyramid on Mars, what on the moon, Frank, do they do they tell you or show you uh, on the moon? Is there a structure like a, like a Howard Johnson's from Aliens that's there that they saw? What, what did they suppress? Did they, did they actually tell you this in the movie? Did they show you? Uh, there is some good stuff. There's not uh, anything along the level of a, uh, of a Howard Johnson's. There is some good stuff uh, that uh, that there there are some great folks interviewed who talk about what they've observed. And um, you don't see a, a smoking gun along the level of a Howard Johnson, but they also get into why that might not have uh, might not have come out. Um, you know, it's really there's but there are some lunar objects that look very much like bases uh, that are either, if not in use now, had been in use previously. Uh, so I definitely recommend you check it out. It's worth worth huh. watching, and I would uh, love your review after you do watch it. Ed. Okay, what was it? What would a base look like? You got well. Base. It's it's well. We don't know if it's it's an alien base or if it could have been used oh. by an ancient civilization, but. It looks pretty flat, um, and uh, I know a lot of things on the moon look flat. It's difficult for me to describe. You kind of got to see the picture, but it looks um, it looks sort of like uh, something that ships would land on and take off on. Um, like, and you'll like see, a slab, it, like, yeah, you know, like a slab, yeah, like a helicopter, helicopter uh, landing. Not, camp, not quite. Like? You have to, you have to see it, Ed, in the images that are on there. Um, and it, uh-huh. just uh, take a look. You'll see exactly what 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 I mean. Um, and it's it's not quite like a helicopter landing pad. It's not. Hey, uh, next hour, there are two prominent U.S. senators that are making noises about running for office next year as independents. And I don't know that um, uh, I don't know that I am going to have that opportunity to vote for them, but or if, if I would, if I did have the opportunity to vote for them, if I would, but I'm glad they're running, and I'm going to get into that and explain why. Meantime, we got the thousand dollar minute coming up. We have the mail. If you would like to be heard, you have two options. You can call at eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two, or you can uh, email me and we'll read your email on the air. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. That's Frank.M-O-R-A-N-O at WABCRadio.com. Very quickly, let me just mention this. The mother of the six-year-old boy who shot his teacher has been charged with felony child neglect. Now, is there an easier case in the world to prove than this one? That if you allow your six-year-old to be in a position to get a loaded gun, bring it to school, and shoot his teacher, that you are committing every transgression possible as a neglectful parent? Unless I'm missing something, I think this is a pretty open and shut case. All right. 
Open phones, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Grant, your influence counts. Make sure you use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. side of midnight i am frank morano all right uh i am a long-suffering not just a new york met fan although some seasons it's easier to be a met fan than others but i am a long-suffering political independent and uh, a lot going on when it comes to independent politics i've been involved in a number of minor parties over the years And I'm still tangentially involved in a couple of minor parties, not necessarily in any leadership capacity, but very much on a lower level. And and to be honest, I don't really contribute all that much. I will weigh in on a conference call now and again and offer my uh, two cents on this issue or that issue. But uh, most of the time when you're involved in minor party politics, it's a... It's a I don't want to say it's an exercise in futility because there are, especially in states like New York and Connecticut, things that you can get done. But it is mostly an exercise in frustration, not only because of how rare electoral success is, but also because you don't have anybody to hang out with. If you're a Republican, you can go to different Republican and conservative meetings, different Republican and conservative clubs, and you you can make communion with all sorts of people that believe as you do, and you could talk about how you're going to storm the storm the barricades together and that kind of thing. Same thing if you're a progressive or a Democrat, whatever the case may be, there's a, a group for you. In the world of independent politics, it's difficult for everybody. It's a little more difficult for me because I'm so against the grain in every group. I find folks in every group that I that I tend not to agree with on a couple of key issues. Now, that being said, there are two things that are happening next year which from someone from my perspective that would like to have more voices and more choices instead of a two-party duopoly i much prefer a vibrant multi-party democracy or and i would prefer a lot of independents having an actual chance to get elected because if you think about it we have a three-party electorate 
but we only have a two-party electoral system, by and large. The first thing is in Arizona. In Arizona, Kirsten Cinema is maybe my favorite member of the U.S. Senate. And she is now filing to run for re-election next year as an independent. And she is facing um, a very left-wing challenger in the person of Democratic Congressman uh, Gallego and Ruben Gallego. And she is facing potentially the challenge on the right of a very conservative Republican challenger, Carrie Lake. Now, in a far-right, far-left matchup, Kirsten Cinema. She could slip in there with a plurality of the vote if she gets a lot of independents to vote for her. Some of the moderate Democrats who don't like the the far left wing message of Gallego and some of the moderate Republicans that don't like the far right messaging of Carrie Lake. She could slip in there. It is possible. She could win a race with 35, 36, 37 percent of the vote. So uh, because they don't have ranked choice voting, which would obviously be ideal, but that's a separate discussion. So I think that that is great. I am really hoping that she wins next year. And I am even thinking of making a campaign contribution to her. And this is at a point in my life where I don't exactly have a great deal of money to spare right now. But I'm thinking of making a campaign contribution to her because I feel very passionately that we need credible independents running for office as independents. Now, I'm not taking anything away from uh, people like Angus King, who are in the who are in the U.S. Senate and were elected as independents. But Angus King and even Bernie Sanders, who calls himself an independent, they really behave much more like Democrats, particularly in the case of Bernie Sanders. He caucuses with the Democrats, participates in their leadership structure and so forth, and is really a Democrat in all but name. But. Angus King less so. When he was a governor, he was certainly much more independent-minded as a governor. But now in the Senate, I think he feels like – I don't want to speak for him, but I feel like in that structure, he feels like he's got to um, play that sort of partisan game in order to deliver anything for his state. I, I like Angus King, uh, though, also. Not as much as Kirsten Cinema, But for if Cinema is able to get elected – get reelected, I should say – as an independent, my – Hope is that this will send a powerful message to every independent-minded legislator around the country saying, yes, you can get elected as an independent. Now, uh, I have given some serious thought to running for office in the future, and I really don't want to join one of the major parties. And immediately you always hear the know-it-alls in both of the major parties. So, well, and that's it. You don't have any chance of winning. But I think if cinema is able to pull this off next year, that really does send the message that, yeah, an independent does have a chance of winning. And uh, and I hope and the, the, you're more likely, those of you that are baseball fans know this, you're more likely to get more hits in more at-bats And the more people start making those attempts to run for office as independents, the more people will get elected as independents, except in states like um, Alaska, where they have this ridiculous top five voting system, which is totally 
discriminatory towards minor party and independent candidates. But again, that's a separate discussion as well. And then it comes to the other big story in independent presidential politics next year. And that is what's happening with Joe Manchin. Senator Joe Manchin has a few options next year, and he has taken many of them off the um, – he has not taken many of them off the table. The only thing he's taken off the table next year is running for governor. He previously was the governor of West Virginia, and he doesn't want to do that again. So he says he's not going to do that. But other than that, he has left open the door for running for re-election as a Democrat, running for re-election as an independent. Or running for president as a Democrat or an independent. Here he was on Fox News Sunday a couple of weeks ago. Here's the thing. Only in America do we start the next election the day after the last election. It's underway. I've not done that. I said I, that's underway, but not I'm gonna do my job. I wanna get this this credit, this debt ceiling, I wanna get this behind us, pay our debts, start trying to get our our expenses down. We can do this. We can reel in the amount of expenses that we have and the debt that we're accumulating. For 21 years, Shannon, we have spent more money in America than we've taken in. You can't run your household that way. No business can survive that way. Mm-hmm. But yet here we are. We're not doing our budget process the way we're supposed to, to get it done on time. That saves billions of dollars. I've got a lot of work to do, and every other senator and congressperson um, does. Can a everybody's President worried Manchin, about the election. Can a President Manchin, though, better influence that conversation? Well, you know, everybody's worried about who's running for what and who's going to be this. My main concern, can we start a dialogue? Do people are, I'm, people are wore out, Shannon. They're tired. All we have is this bickering and fighting. They says, can't you come together? Okay, I'm gonna... So if we can start a dialogue <laughs> where the middle, can't we basically bring the extremes back to where they're supposed to be in a sensible, down. reasonable middle? And that was on Fox News Sunday. That same day, he went on NBC's Meet the Press and mentioned the possibility of also running for president. Now, he has repeatedly refused to rule out a presidential bid. And even though he's always been elected, both as governor and U.S. senator, as a Democrat, he remains very highly critical of President Biden. And Manchin's role in an evenly divided Senate during the first two years of Biden's presidency effectively made him the most powerful senator, along with cinema. And the media, they've even occasionally dubbed him the shadow president. They've scrutinized every word he's ever uttered. This is a 75-year-old man who has spent decades in relative obscurity. Now he's the highest-profile senator, maybe along with cinema, in Washington. So he barely won re-election in 2018. His state, West Virginia, is a state where Donald Trump is incredibly uh, popular. So it's not inconceivable that he's going to have a tough time running for re-election next year. There's uh, two Republicans that are running uh, potentially next year. One is the governor, Jim Justice, who's a former Democrat and probably has a very good chance of winning if he's the nominee. The other is a far-right MAGA Republican that probably would not win, that would suffer the same uh, state as uh, Carrie, uh, Carrie Lake in Arizona. Trump won West Virginia with almost 70 percent of the vote in 2020. So if Trump's on the ballot in 2024, chances are he's going to 
have a pretty good opportunity to do that same thing. So um, it's going to be very difficult for Manchin to run as a Democrat underneath that. And that's why it made sense for him to oppose so much of Biden's agenda, no matter how much it infuriated Democrats. And for a time that worked. Um, in April of 2022, a year ago, Manchin's approval rating was 57 percent, including a whopping 69 percent of Republicans. But that all that all went away after he backed Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. His approval rating crashed as independents and Republicans abandoned him in West Virginia. Now his approval rating is at about 40 percent. And um, he's going to have a tough time running for re-election in West Virginia. And that's one reason that Manchin might run for president as an independent. He's got nowhere to go in his home state. I don't like to be governed by polls, but a lot of these polls increasingly show voters are becoming independents nationally. February Gallup poll found that 44% of Americans say that they're independents, much more then say they're Democrats or Republicans. And you know what the biggest group that that number is growing in? Young people. And young people is also the group that says by the largest number that they would consider voting for an independent or third-party candidate. March uh, In March, Harvard-Harris poll found 53% of Americans, including 60% would consider voting, uh, 60% of independents, would consider voting for an independent, moderate presidential candidate over Biden or Trump. See, if it's a Biden-Trump matchup, that is essentially a dream match for a centrist independent candidate because a lot of Democrats don't want Biden and a lot of Republicans don't want Trump, and you're stuck with them. And that's going to be the most likely matchup. And in that kind of environment, Manchin, with this no-labels group that he would likely be running with, He would be on the ballot probably in all 50 states, and he would probably have a moderate Republican as his vice presidential running mate, Uh, maybe someone like former Governor Larry Hogan or someone along those lines. And I think Manchin could have a decent chance at um, doing really well. I'm not going to go so far as to say that you would win, but he might win a couple of states. He might get enough votes in the Electoral College to throw the whole race into the House of Representatives. And um, he might do it just to hurt Biden, because there's been a number of analyses that show a third-party candidate is much more likely to hurt Biden than Trump in the states where they don't have ranked-choice voting, which is just about all of them on the presidential level. Um, a big part of me hopes that he does do it. I don't know that I would vote for Manchin, mainly because of this Russia-Ukraine situation. My ideal presidential candidate running as an independent next year is someone like Tulsi Gabbard. Because Tulsi Gabbard gets it when it comes to foreign policy. Joe Manchin, as far as I'm concerned, and this is my biggest concern with no labels, he's just a part of the establishment when it comes to foreign policy. And that establishment is going to lead us into World War III. With Trump, I think he's too extreme in many different areas. I think his rhetoric can be polarizing. But if Donald Trump's elected, I know we're not going to nuclear war with Russia. I, I, know, I know that. 
And that is very appealing to me. I just wish there was an independent candidate that had that same messaging on foreign policy. With Tulsi Gabbard, you have that. So if there was a Tulsi Gabbard running, that's my dream ticket. But there's no Tulsi Gabbard running, at least not yet. I am hoping that something like this comes to fruition because I think it would be a healthy thing for the independent political movement and maybe could build a future national third party. You know, one of these other third party groups that is trying to get started is uh, Andrew Yang's uh, forward party. And they announced last week that they're not even going to be running a presidential candidate. Now, in a lot of states, that means that that dashes your hopes of getting ballot access for that party in the future. If uh, Joe Manchin is able to get a lot of votes, even if he's not able to win any states, he's able to kind of lay the groundwork for a future third-party movement, getting guaranteed ballot access for a whole bunch of offices in a whole bunch of states and getting the presidential candidate that runs with that party four years from now access to millions of dollars in funding, which would enable them to kind of keep the conversation going. So I am cautiously optimistic that we could be in the midst of a watershed moment when it comes to third parties and independent politics. What do you think? One, would you ever consider voting for cinema? Two, in a Biden-Trump matchup, would you ever consider voting for Manchin? And three, irrespective of if you'd consider voting for them, do you think that these dual potential candidacies, Cinema as an independent for U.S. Senate matched with Manchin as an independent for president, do you think that could be kind of the shot in the arm that the third party or independent political movement needs? What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. The other, uh, the other thing that um, I would um, ask your opinion on is that I live in a state, and there are a lot of states like this, but I live in a state and in a city where there are no competitive ju- judicial elections. There's essentially one party um, rule in 90% of the judicial districts and in the states where there's not when the handful of districts where there's not one party rule the parties make deals among themselves to make sure that uh, there's no choice in the general election so that means people like me that don't get to vote in a democratic primary we essentially have no choice in the general election your choice is democratic candidate or write in someone and so When I was in the leadership of various third parties over the years, one of the things that I did at least one year, and I was heavily criticized for this by the editorial board of the New York Daily News, a number of other papers, and a lot of good government groups criticized this for me, is I would just run lawyers for judge that had no idea they were running. I would file petitions for lawyers all over the city to run for civil court and in some cases Supreme Court who had no idea that they were judicial candidates. Why? Because I believe the voters deserved a choice of two of two candidates on the ballot. And the only people that are eligible to run currently under the law in New York is people that are attorneys for 10 years or more. 
So my question for you is this. Uh, I am thinking about doing that again this year. Not that I'm in the leadership of any political party and not that I exactly have a lot of free time right now. But do you see any problem with that? With me running lawyers for judge around the state and around the city that don't even know that they're running. And look, they'll get something in the mail. And if they want to file a declination with the New York State Board of Elections, they'll have the opportunity to do so. But I think the voters in these communities should have the opportunity to vote for someone other than one person in what's supposed to be an election. But it's not an election. The parties have completely abdicated their responsibility to even be the loyal opposition. And I don't blame them. I've been in that same position as well myself because sometimes it's it's tough to find people that actually want to run when you know you're going to lose. Why should you spend all this time putting your name on a ballot and if people look at you up when they want to hire a lawyer five years from now, ten years from now, they see, oh, this person got... Five percent of the vote in a judicial election. Yeah, I want to hire that as my hire that person as my lawyer. I get it. Or if they want to give it the old college try, they say, why should I spend all this time ruining my summer vacation, begging all my friends and family for money when I know I'm going to lose? And that's, again, one of the many reasons I hate these partisan elections. I wish there were were nonpartisan elections at more levels of government. So uh, give me a call on any of that, on either the mansion cinema races or what you think I should do in terms of whether or not it's appropriate for me to run um, uh, candidates that don't know they're running for public office. Is there anything wrong with that? Uh, The Daily News referred to me as a clown, a ballot bungler, a court jester. And just about every dopey nickname. Now, what I wish these editorial boards instead would do, instead of criticizing me, would be to look at where we are in New York, that we have no judicial elections to speak of in the general. And in many cases, we don't have them in the primary either. But, of course, why would you do that when instead you can criticize me for trying to give the voters at least a pretense of a choice? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Wide open lines if you want to comment. 800-848-9222. Um, a friend of mine emails me, who would uh, who would uh, Manchin's running mate happen to ha- have to, who would it be? Because you need a Republican. If he's a Democrat, you need a Republican under the no labels rules. Well, I already mentioned it would be Larry Hogan. I think um, he's the most likely Republican running mate for uh, Joe Manchin based on what uh, has been reported publicly and what they have indicated that they're thinking of doing on that front. You want to email me. We're going to go through the mail in uh, in about 10 minutes. You can email me at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano radio at uh, wabcradio.com. Getting great feedback to that segment on uh, the Secret Space Program. I'm going to have to have those guys back because there's a lot of questions that uh, that we didn't get to um, in our conversation, and I appreciated the fact that um, that Mike kept mentioning Richard Hoagland and the great work that Richard Hoagland has been doing on this front. With the help of one of our listeners, and I don't know if she wants her name mentioned, I'm not even actually sure of her real name, 
We have actually uh, got Richard Hoagland coming on this program tomorrow, and I'm looking forward to that conversation very much. He's done a lot of interesting work, and I'm looking forward to talking with him about that. 800-848-9222. Let's say hello to Robert in Suffolk. Hello, Robert. Hi, Frank. Hi, Robert. Um, that's interesting what you are proposing and considering doing about uh, – Essentially making uh, writing candidates before an election without their knowledge. Well, not right. Yeah, but not writing. They would be candidates on on the ballot. I mean, um, I've always been of the belief that um, the office should seek the man rather than the man seeking the office. And um, you can really only do that in the state that I live in with judicial elections, because uh, if you run for something else, um, uh, state assembly, city council, Congress, whatever, you, that candidate would have to file a certificate of acceptance. But in judicial elections, that's not the case. They don't have to file that. They'd only have to file a certificate of declination. Right. Uh, our lack of choice is very concerning. I, uh, your point is well taken on that one. So what do you think I should do, Robert? Well, my thrust, which I'm going to make a petition for is, and I hope WABC would host it on their website, is election reform. To make it near impossible to cheat in elections on a, at any level. All right, well, nationwide. Look, yeah, I, I, um, I think that's out of the scope of the discussion we're having, Robert, but I appreciate the suggestion. Thank you. Eight open lines if you want to comment, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Uh, also on Facebook if you want to weigh in either um, on this or any of the other subjects we're talking about. Uh, the Facebook group is facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. That's facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. Uh, David sharing an article about the Northern Ireland uh, fragile peace, which uh, I has I have mentioned has lasted uh, 25 years. And he points out in a uh, column, an opinion piece, that uh, it's it's much more fragile than I made it sound like. All right, well, uh, you can check that out. Donna writing that uh, our interview with Malachi McCourt was terrific, really enjoyed it. Yeah, he's just a gem. He's a wonderful, wonderful guy, and uh, I appreciate his willingness to come on with me, and he's just uh, really a brilliant man and a brilliant storyteller as far as uh, as far as I'm concerned. All right. Um, all right. Without uh, further ado. Uh, oh, by the way, a lot of people were asking me about the uh, other side of midnight online store. I did want to share that um, because a lot of folks indicated that they've seen the cool merchandise that I've been wearing and they want to see how they can get some. You can go to store dot other side of midnight show dot com. I have been buying everything in the store. I just bought a pillow, and I didn't. I was embarrassed to say this because we put it up in our house. It's like it's a it's somewhat sort of like a throw pillow. I didn't know that it had a back of it. It's one side that says the other side of midnight with Frank Morano, which I think is really cool. It's sort of a truck stop sign, and then if you go to the other side, there's a picture of an alien on a planet. Our our other pseudo logo, and I didn't know there was another side. 
I showed that to my wife yesterday. I said, oh, I think that's the coolest thing ever. And um, she said, yeah, I saw that the day you, it, we, you put it out. So that's the that's great. There's shirts on there. There's mugs. There's caps. There's T-shirts. There's a brand-new jersey. There's the cool denim jacket that I am wearing. And it's all at... Um, other side of mid uh, at store dot other side of midnight dot com at store dot other side of midnight dot com. Whatever you choose to buy, though, if you use the discount code Frank 15, that's Frank 15, you will get uh, an opportunity to save 15 percent off on uh, everything that's in the online store. All right. Without further ado, uh, since nobody wants to comment on this, it's fine with me, uh, you can be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And if you are the seventh caller, we'll give you a chance to play the $1,000 minute. And uh, if you're able to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, then you will be able to take home a $1,000. Simple as that. Uh, 800-848-9222. You can go ahead and call right now. We'll play the $1,000 Minute straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Sweet little Sheila, you'll know her if you see her. Blue eyes and a ponytail. Her cheeks are rosy, she looks a little nosy. Man, this little girl is fine. Never knew a girl like a little Sheila. Her name drives me insane. Sweet little girl, that's my little Sheila. Man, this little girl is fine. Me and Sheila go for a ride Oh, 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 I feel a funny inside Then little Sheila whispers in my ear Oh, 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 I love you, Sheila, dear Sheila said she Tommy loved me she Crow said she singing me. Sheila A big shout-out to um, my uh, to our friend Sheila, Sheila Morgan Who uh, recently found Carmine's duck hat for his bathtub, and she's embroidering it with his name and sending it to him. So she's a great person and part of the little cadre of folks that I uh, share a house with in Cape May every summer. So uh, thank you, Sheila Morgan, for that. All right, uh, without further ado, let's see if we can't give away some money, shall we? It's time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Thank you, Chris Lipatini. Uh, let us say hello to Tom on Long Island. Hello, Tom. Good morning, Frank. Morning, Tom. Tom, have you heard this segment before? I have. Okay, great. So you know what to do, right? I do. All right, let's get started if you're ready. Don't get nervous, okay? Okay. All right. Name a U.S. state that starts with the letter A. Alabama. What did Humpty Dumpty sit on before having a great fall? A wall. What cable news network does Don Lemon work for? 
CNN. What early American president is the town of Madison, New Jersey named for? Uh, Sadie, uh, Madison. What American author wrote The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn? Mark Twain. What singer holds the record for most Grammy nominations? Mariah Carey. Ah, no! You were doing so well. You got up to question six, and uh, and you were doing it in uh, a very good amount of time. But um, no, the answer we were looking for was uh, Beyonce. Beyonce has the record for most Grammy nominations uh, with 79 uh, career nominations. You did very well, though, Tom. Very impressive. I'm going to put you on hold. Give uh, Kenneth your information. We'll send you a a, a consolation prize, okay? Thanks, Frank. Thank you, uh, Tom. Appreciate that. All right. Without further ado, let us – we have mostly email today, one or two tweets, one or two Facebook messages so I'm I'm just I'm not going to announce everyone that's an email, everyone that's a Facebook message. I'm just going to kind of read these as they uh, as they as they come. All right. Without further ado, it is time for this week's edition of. This is an email from Jeff and Lisa, subject delayed podcast, very loyal listeners, but generally between 6 and 10 a.m. The day starts getting busy at around 8 or 9 a.m., so we often miss parts of the show. However, this delayed podcast is killing us. Help. Thank you, Jeff and Lisa. Yeah, first of all, Jeff and Lisa, I appreciate you guys listening Second, I have brought this up, and I'm hoping we can get this rectified, uh, but, um, you know, we, we've changed the podcasting system, and it used to be available when Kenneth posted it, basically at 45 minutes to an hour after the show. Now, a lot of times, it's not available till 7.30, 8 o'clock, 8.30, and I know it's frustrating for a lot of people. It's frustrating for me. Uh, so, uh, I hear you. I have brought it to the attention of management, and I am hoping we can do something to fix this soon. Um, we uh, Usually, we were having these weekly meetings with our program director, but he's on leave, uh, taking care of some personal stuff, and um, I have not gotten to discuss it with him or with uh, management in any substantive way. I am told they're hiring some new people that will streamline this. And uh, make less of a lag time. But I don't know when that's happening, to be honest. So I'll keep you posted, but you got to suffer. And it's a show worth waiting for, hopefully. And if if you don't get to finish the whole show, just finish the previous day's show before the most recent edition comes out. That's it. If you're not a podcast subscriber, by the way, please subscribe to the podcast at othersideofmidnightshow.com. Uh, Eric writes me on the subject of Patrick Buchanan. Are we still getting Pat Buchanan emails? I mean, that's so 30 years ago. Okay. Uh, Eric writes, Pat Buchanan is notorious for a history of anti-black and anti-brown sentiments. Link below. 
However, he makes an exception for brown Palestinian Muslim Arabs for whom he uniquely professes sympathy and whom he uses as a pretext for his animus towards Israel, which happens to be a Jewish majority state reflecting his underlying anti-Semitism. Well, Eric, at least he makes an exception for the Palestinians. At least he doesn't hate all brown people, right? Uh, And then he quotes a press release from the group FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. I don't find FAIR to be fair at all. I find they take remarks out of uh, context, and I find they're particularly harsh uh, towards conservatives, which Pat Buchanan is. So I don't uh, put a lot of stock in anything FAIR says, in all honesty. Dick Hogan writes, uh, Frank. Although it is technically a Broadway musical, a good video production of uh, is Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Terrific entertainment. Completely agree. Completely agree. Particularly if you're sipping on a couple of champagne coolies with a, a friend of yours. Denise writes, another great show. Uh, she sent this on Monday. Hey, Frank, regrettably I missed the first hours as I thought Curtis would be on for you. Couldn't handle the prospect of more yelling and screaming. (laughs) One, I adore, adore, adore Charlton Heston. Two, as a survivor of 12 (laughs) years of Catholic education, I must vote for The Life of Brian as my favorite biblical film. Laughing as I type this. So let it be written, so let it be done, Denise. Um, You know, this is a nice letter. You know Jerry, who calls this program from Canada, Jerry in Ontario? What he did is he wrote a letter to his local talk station in Canada, in Ontario, basically saying this. Hi there. I highly recommend that you consider airing this program for your overnight programming. Frank Morano is the enthusiastic host of the program, which is based in the U.S., Frank covers a wide range of topics with various guests and takes calls from listeners. It's a fun show to listen to, and especially is much better than the overnight programming you currently air. I stopped listening to your station overnight when I happened to catch Frank's program one early morning. Now, that's very nice. I really wish we have a lot of listeners that listen around the country and around the world, quite frankly. But if you're listening to us in the U.S. somewhere that's not New York or Baltimore or Nevada or Buffalo or Atlantic City or um, Nashville or Alaska, uh, I, I think it'd be great if you're in Florida, Boston, wherever you happen to be, Ohio, write to your local talk stations a similar letter saying you want this uh, talk station to carry our show and then forward me the letter. And uh, we'll follow up with that station. If they start hearing that from enough people, you know what will happen? They will carry the show. And you won't have to hunt for us on the Internet. You can listen to us on your local talk station. Wouldn't that be nice? Um, all right. This person writes, um, Broderick writes, Hi, Frank. Notwithstanding the extremely, he's writing about Curtis's filling in for me on Friday. Notwithstanding the extremely torturous, loud music, even heavy metal, and the constantly repetitive playback of a couple of highlights, including over two dozen times the Marjorie Taylor Greene comments, as well as a banshee screaming at the top of her voice. Curtis played that, too, over and over again, at least 20 (laughs) times. Nothing of any substance was discussed, and the complete 240 minutes could have been aired in less than 30. 
He didn't even bother to offer listeners the rapid-fire segment, which he used to have on his own shows before leaving WABC to run for mayor. Uh, Finally, Curtis is entirely wrong about his idea of keeping listeners awake by playing excessively loud music. On the contrary, listeners will just switch to another station or go to the Internet to listen to one of tens of millions of radio and TV stations or go to YouTube or just go to sleep. Frank, we'd appreciate your forwarding this email to Curtis. Our emails to him either don't reach him or he doesn't read or answer emails. Best wishes, Broderick. Um, l- let me just say, do not send me emails intended for forwarding to uh, Curtis. Because I-, I-, I have enough difficulty just communicating with Curtis as it is. But yeah, I, you know, I get I got sort of lukewarm reviews from Curtis um, and is filling in for me on Friday. What I heard, I thought was very good. Other people thought it was a little repetitive. But you know what? The guy's got ninety two hours wow. to fill of radio last weekend. Can you blame him for repeating some content? I know. Yo, chill out. Um, Mike writes uh, on the subject RFK Jr. Why not? When I was uh, filling in for Sid Rosenberg, I was talking about RFK Jr.'s presidential candidacy. He writes, I think RF, uh, J- RFK Jr. would have a good chance running as a Democrat. Older, moderate Democrats still have a strong attachment to the Kennedys. In regards to his speaking voice, it's not how he says it, but the content of his message that's important. It's no worse than what we have now. A person who struggles to put coherent sentences together on any given day. He's talking about Biden. We live in a society at a time where we all are or should be accepted in spite of their differences from the norm. So why not? Uh, I'm not saying Robert F. Kennedy shouldn't be accepted. I'm saying I don't think some voters will view him as presidential because of the way he sounds. That's all I said. Um, And I well, I didn't even say that. I really raised the question. Jim in New Hampshire, subject, William Henry Harrison. Frank, I honestly resist making fun of people who play the $1,000 minute. Believe me, I don't come close to knowing everything and certainly am prone to brain freezes. <laughs> but William Henry Harrison wasn't in, wasn't, wasn't in office for barely enough time to check his watch, really? less than have two vice presidents d- die under him. If you don't know the answer, any other president would have been a better guest. I'm sorry, but I laugh. Poor guy. Uh, that was one guy that couldn't come up with the right answer to James Madison last week. All right. Um, David writes, I hope that Samuel Chong guy isn't expecting any Christmas cards from the Vatican. Ha, ha, ha. This is a guest we had last week. And Frank, dude, Dr. Sky's response to that caller that questioned the 1969 moon landing was so weak. He said, we haven't been back because of a lack of funding. I mean, please. The frickin' space shuttle had a damn blank check for damn near two decades, and that went absolutely nowhere. Moon is frickin' 250,000 miles away. Absolutely no way we went there. Lastly, similar to that issue in Fargo, how they're taking away local control at the state level. I lived in Key West for over a decade, and in Key West, the city council passed a unanimous referendum limiting both the size and frequency of cruise ships. But then Tallahassee just swooped in and made some sweeping state law that basically negated the law. You know, I'm not familiar with that law in Florida, but I'll just reiterate what I said about this the other day. I'm against 
national governments or state governments trumping local uh, control. That's it. Uh, another person writes uh, on our show last uh, Thursday with the artist that was doing the sand sculptures of the, the whale. Frank, I'm a liberal, but most of all, I love animals. Your show tonight is one that should be repeated. Your guest was amazing, as are you. Whales, dolphins, the sea are miracles and vital. They deserve our love and efforts. We must stop these insane windmills offshore. I will do what I can and spread the word. Your show has evolved beautifully. Yes, there are times I don't agree with you, your guests, and I turn the dial, but overall... I've come to depend on your show to be a light in the night. Literally, bless you and your family. Keep on being you. Uh, Patrice asked the question, why do presidents take documents home? What are they used for? And did you know about that 1917 act he was talking about punishable by death? I think that that uh, act she's referring to is the uh, Espionage Act. Um, why do presidents take documents home? I think many of them have different reasons. I think many of it do uh, do it because they want it to want to write something. I think some people, and I think this might have been the case with some of the stuff Trump uh, took home. I think some people do it for a souvenir. It's kind of a neat thing to get a, a letter from the president of North Korea, and I think he might have done it as part of a souvenir. And um, I think uh, some people do it. By accident, inadvertently. Some people may also do it, as I think Sandy Berger did, not that he was a president, because they're trying to hide things. Uh, AJ writes, hey, Frank, love the show. I used to listen to WABC for many years, and after I moved to Texas, just couldn't get but get it. But thanks to the Internet app, I, voila. You had mentioned the other night that one of the songs you play on the way to Atlantic City is Atlantic City by the band. Did you know that Springsteen wrote that? I'm thinking you do, but I thought I'd ask. I'd love uh, Levon Helms' vocals on it as well. Yes, and I'm slated to go to a Bruce Springsteen concert That's right. on Friday, and I am hoping that he performs that song. I am a big fan of that song. I like the band version more than Bruce's version, but there's nothing wrong with Bruce's version either. All right, um... All right, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame in a moment. There are seven open lines if you want to be heard, 800-848-9222. If we didn't get to your letter today, you can get to it on the next edition of... The Other Side of Midnight. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. theme song there. We miss Andy B very much. 
All right. Uh, without further ado, let's give you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds. If you tried to get through, um, the lines are jammed, but they're going to clear up in quickly. So just if, you, if you're trying to get through now and it's a busy signal, just call back again in 10 seconds and then 30 seconds you'll get through. 800-848-9222. It's time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Raji! Curtis, when you cite warmonger Gordon Gungho Chang, please also mention Mark Bunker Levin and the Polish hostess Rita Cosby Nidro who volunteered to serve. Thank you. Neil. I bet if that imbecile Biden's index card said suck the Dalai Lama's tongue, he would do it. Roy. All listeners, boycott listening to... Curtis and that mama look Avery with the way they make fun out of Frank Morano. Cheech. There are only two types. There are only two types of people in this in America. Those who pledge allegiance to our nation and those who don't. Destroy Antifa now. 800-848-9222. Sam. Sism moron, sism moron, sism moron, moron. 800-848-9222. Tony. Yes. I love Sid Rosenberg, but he only has two faults. He's dishonest, and he's a toothpaste. Spectacular. 800-848-9222. Leo. Good morning. Lucrezia Borgia, the daughter of Pope, was famous with the poisoning people, including one of her husbands, and her brother killed the other husband, so she was not good married to stuff either. Larry. Half a million people moved out of dangerous New York. It's time to defund all black causes. Well, that is pretty blatantly racist. Uh, Ray in New Jersey. Yes, I implore Democrats, please vote for Donald Trump. Biden is a real criminal. He sold us out to China. Thank you. Brandon. Hey, Frank, please don't start the show saying that you've kissed lots of men. It's a little disturbing. Bobby. Hey, Frank, how can we leave ourselves so vulnerable to the 90% of our trips from Taiwan, 100 miles from China? Unbelievable. Thank you. Robert. If the Dalai Lama is kissing a boy in public, God only knows what he does in private. All right, on that promissory note i think that slams the lid on things for today back tomorrow uh we'll talk a little elvis tomorrow i found somebody that's written interesting book on elvis uh, from a not a music perspective or even an acting perspective but from a health perspective and what uh her research into elvis's health conditions might have meant for lisa marie with her untimely death. So uh, I'm looking forward to that conversation. Richard Hoagland, who hosts another show called The Other Side of Midnight. He's going to be here. And I'm uh, working on some other fun things that I think you're going to enjoy as well. And uh, well, I don't want to spoil all of them. Until then, Frank Morano, good day. Good day.